Hello and welcome in once again to this special episode of the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by Andrew. QB11, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Doug? I am well, thank you. And of course, we're bringing back our most frequent guest and friend of the show and all-around analytics charting data expert, Hithliday from Addicted to Quack. Hithliday, good evening. Uh, hi, it's nice to be here. Um, if I'm your most frequent guest, you need to get Kenny Dillingham more often. That guy's brain needs to get picked. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have much luck getting him during the season or anybody on staff for that. Uh, but I would much rather them spend their time doing uh, game plans and getting ready for future opponents, especially with the stretch of games that are coming up here. We have uh, we are now going to be doing our Q3 review, which means that we're going to be covering the UCLA, Cal, and Colorado games. Um, it kind of trend lines things that we've taken note of with the offense, defense, and special teams. Um, less on the special teams, more on the other two. Uh, and kind of projecting forward, because I think this team, and Hithliday, correct me if you disagree here, um, is more or less what it's going to be um, now down the home stretch of the season where Oregon's playing two ranked teams back-to-back in Washington, Utah, Oregon State on the road, and then hopefully a Pac-12 title game. Uh, well, that's what it's looking like. You know, Oregon controls its own destiny in the Pac-12. Um, and, uh, you know, with the you know possible exception of... Uh, well, there's always, you know, Kenny Dillingham has been pretty consistently surprising me. Um, that may sound like an oxymoron, but it is true uh, in terms of like introducing new wrinkles every single week. Um, you know, against Colorado this last week, you know, it, it sort of caught everybody's, you know, attention, you know, the trick plays. Uh, but really, I sort of only classify one of those as a trick play, you know, the halfback pass, you know, the putting uh, Josh Connerly in an eligible jersey, you know, number 94, like that wasn't a spur of the moment decision, you know, like they, that his nameplate's on the back of that. That was a fitted jersey for him, you know, like they're probably going to do that going forward. And it's, it was the jersey that he was playing in the entire game. Um, there's no reason why, you know, so that's the ninth different play. They've now run out of the eye formation. Like, first of all, I sort of expect that Kenny Dillingham is going to add a couple more by the the season's conclusion. And second of all, like, he's probably going to be playing in an eligible number for the rest of the season. You could do more than just that. Um, so, you know, there, there's always like, I don't know, fun stuff uh, that, that could be added to the playbook. You know, he's, he's definitely not keeping it um, too static. Well, are you and when you when you count the plays, are you also counting the different formations that we've given out of that same personnel package? Because what um, no, is, I just mean like you know what you know you know inside power versus outside power. Yeah, you're you're right that there's been a bunch of different variations of the I formation. Like for example, they've been doing the right guard right tackle flip sometimes. Um, you know, uh, they, uh, you know, sometimes they, they, uh, they split out the one of the tight ends, you know, out to the sideline. Um, so yeah, like it's, it, it is not only play-based variation, there's also formational variation within the I formation, which like might sound like a contradiction in terms, but nope, it, it's totally true. Like you can do a bunch of different things out of the thing. I've sort of like been, you know, I, I admit as an Oregon fan, there was a, a time when I just like the eye formation would give me hives because I had it like associated with the sort of stodgy old fashioned football programs that I never wanted Oregon to be like. And then Oregon started doing it and my opinion changed. How about that? Yeah. Did it remind you of Andy Ludwig by chance? Um, it might've, uh, but you know, <laughs> here I, I gotta, I gotta make a good luck charm to ward that off. You brought up the, the horrible man. I was in the stadium for t- 2002 to 2004 watching those offenses and just wanting to like, 
you know, I sure wish that Autzen Stadium stole, sold beer back then. Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because, like, I think that my, like, coherent remembrance of Oregon football in, like, something close to the fandom that I pro- I possess now probably starts in about 2005. Um, like, I, well, I That remember- makes sense when, when Andy Ludwig got fired. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kind of blacked that all out of my memory. So... Um, although he seems to be improving at Utah, um, but why I mean, if he's that? got three excellent tight ends to catch the ball, otherwise it's sort of trouble. Yeah. Well, let's let's start this. Then we've already kind of started on the offense. Let's stay on the offense if that works with you. Um, one thing that you just brought up that I really like too is there's also too like for from a formational variation standpoint out of that heavy 14 personnel uh, package that we're talking about, which is where they bring Connerly in. Uh, and then they have all they bring in the three tight ends. Typically, it's been Herbert at the fullback, but now we've seen Noah Sewell make uh, a cameo over there on that side of the ball as the fullback. And like as much as I love Patrick Herbert, I, I kind of love the idea of Noah Sewell being the fullback a little bit more um, now that I've gotten to see it with my own eyes. But they've also done a lot of variations of formation out of that. They've done some stuff out of the shotgun with it. They've done. Um, some too wide where both Mataveo and Ferguson flex wide of the formation. Um, and we've even seen some of those old swinging gate formations from like the Tom Osborne special teams units of old at Oregon, um, where, where they just like completely spread into these funky formations and are looking for numbers advantages. Um, have you, do you have a chart or an idea of how many, how many different formations we've seen out of the same personnel grouping? How many different formations out of the same? Yeah, I can run that database query. Give me one second. Yeah, no, you're good. I was just curious because I, I'm thinking through my head right now, and this is it's funny because six. The answer is six. Yeah, so six out of that for uh, that personnel grouping is quite a lot for a defense to install for in one week. Um, let alone the fact that that is one of about six different personnel groupings that Oregon is now using with a lot of regularity. Um, and well, so, and the, and you mul- and you just multiply the number of different things you can do out of it by a factor of two. Now that Connerly is in an eligible jersey, um, and they have put on, you know, the relevant thing wasn't the touchdown. Although, of course, the touchdown was nice. The relevant thing is that they're willing to do it. Um, you know, that's what uh, future opponents have to stare at and be like, oh, great, everything that they can do out of that formation now they can double it. Uh, yeah, super. And that's why I liked them putting Sewell at fullback too, right? Because he like in high school he was a running back. Early on in his career at Oregon, when there were some injury issues, there was some some times where um, he was getting some reps with the running backs just in case of an emergency situation. Like he's a more dynamic player with the ball in his hands than Herbert at, fr- from a from a ball carrier standpoint out of the backfield. Um, and so that gives you some additional flexibility if if you could give him if you can have him involved in four or five new plays. Um, in a given week out of the, out of the backfield now on the offensive side of the ball in that grouping. So yeah, it's just, it's fun to see the way that coach Dillingham and the offensive staff are layering different concepts and formations out of a, a grouping that is so niche to begin with. And then as long as we're talking about formations, the other one that's showing up um, and, and actually more frequently than the under center stuff is the pistol formation, which, you know, maybe I just, you know, caused an Andy Ludwig like allergic reaction in a bunch of Oregon fans. But like it's um, it's actually pretty significant, uh, you know, it's a significant percentage of their play calls at this point. And like and it's 
you know, the, the it's mostly been runs, but they've been hitting some big passes out of it. In fact, uh, you know, the, that big uh, post route uh, against UCLA um, uh, to Troy Franklin was out of the pistol. And the, the second play of this Colorado game, the, you know, the uh, the sluggo to uh, to Troy uh, to to to, to Hutz, Chris Hudson um, was also out of the pistol, although the snap of that got cut off in the ESPN broadcast. I had to go back to the source to find that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, so, you know, like the, the pistol has been pretty effective for Oregon this year. Um, it's not as frequent as during the Mario Cristobal days, but like it's, it's good. It, it definitely, you know, it, it allows you to, for example, um, create unbalanced formations, even though you don't look like you're unbalanced, um, you know, and that sort of messes with the defense in, in a way that's pretty fun. Yeah. And it also, with some of the different actions that they've done out of it, uh, allows you to also get like true old school uh, under center back to the court, back to the defense play action looks, mm-hmm. um, which present a very different challenge to the safeties and linebackers than the like more traditional offset back shotgun play action stuff where they can pretty see clearly see the ball right um and so like i think that's been the 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 variation i guess this is kind of another transition here but like the variation of shot plays um Mm -hmm. like some of it's out of like the kind of half quarter roll stuff where they're using typically a tight end uh, to to get a seal block on an unblocked edge defender where they're just kind of moving the pocket about just outside the tackle box one way or another, typically to the right, which makes sense because you have a right-handed quarterback. Um, but they're also doing it now out of more pistol traditional play action looks um, and, and even some straight drop back. So uh, we're, I think we're seeing that the inventory of ways that they're getting into their shot plays and, and deep shots uh, grow as as the season has continued to progress. Well, especially like the way that the, the, the rollout shot plays that you're talking about, like number one, Bonix has the arm strength to throw, not just to the side of the field that he is, uh, you know, rolling to, he is quite frequently throwing to a guy coming off the left side of the formation. Um, and you know, number two, you know, what that plays into is it extends the play. It means that, you know, between the snap and the time the ball is caught is something in the order of six or seven seconds. And, you know, that is leveraging Oregon's athletic advantage at, you know, wide receiver versus the defensive backs in this league. Cause it's like, if you allow the wide receiver to run for seven seconds, he is going to be open if he's an Oregon receiver playing a Pac-12 defense. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that some of the stuff where it's going back across the grain, we've we've shown quite a bit of it now. That was kind of the situation with the Hudson um, Hudson play at the beginning of the Colorado game. It was also the case in the pass interference uh, against UCLA, I believe, where we tried to throw the throwback on it, mm-hmm. like the, the right exactly. And he got tackled in the end zone. Yep, he got ta- yeah. Chase Cota got tackled in the end zone. Um, so yeah, like you said, arm strength by the quarterback, but it also, in, especially in some of the early down situations what it's allowing is nicks to make plays with his legs and keep us ahead of the chains if the shot play isn't there because while it's a quarter or half roll whatever you want to categorize it as doesn't really matter you're also typically getting max protection we're we're only sending three out on most of the plays that i've seen out of that specific um tree of concepts whereas and actually i think that kind of applies broadly to most of oregon shot plays this season is almost all of them have come out of max protect situations. And then, uh, well, except for the ones where they're rolling out. Um, but the, uh, the, the other thing that's interesting to me, um, on the other end of the spectrum from the shot plays is these last two games against Cal and Colorado, 
Um, Cal, because of the structure of Cal's defense and their defensive philosophy in Colorado, I think probably mostly because of the conditions and, uh, you know, some, some wide receivers being a little banged up in that game. Um, both of those games, Oregon was much more interested in throwing short passes, um, and sort of, you know, setting up plays in such a way where either, you know, athletic advantages, just like running over safeties. You know, I, one of the clips of my article that went up this morning was, uh, was Patrick Herbert just running over a poor safety that he's got like 70 pounds on or you know schematically you know sort of uh running out a pattern so that there's going to be you know it's a short pass that gets caught but then there's a lead blocker in front of him so the dude is able to turn downfield and run for 30 extra yards um again because Cal wanted to take those plays away with their defensive backs and Colorado sort of does too um but you know also the wind and other conditions um and so it's been interesting to me to to watch the way that Dillingham has been the way uh, Dillingham strikes me as a guy who watches film, which like all coaches do, obviously, I'm not saying anything really unique about it, but it has been gratifying to me to watch opponent film come up with stuff that they're vulnerable to and then seeing Kenny Dillingham running those plays against them. So for example, the Texas routes that he ran to great effect against Cal, uh, you know, I, I, I put those clips in my article. I was just like, look, look at these Texas, right? The, the structure of Cal's defense allows you to run the Texas routes for the uninitiated is when the running back first starts to run out and then cuts back in. So he's got an inside linebacker on him and then he cuts back in. Basically he's breaking, you know, that poor ILB's ankles, you know, to come back in. So the quarterback's got a nice shot and then he gets to run away from the ILB in that play. Oregon ran two of them against Cal. They haven't really run a Texas route before or since, but Cal is sort of structurally really vulnerable to it because the way that that they immediately move out their ILBs. And it was just like, ah, oh, Kenny, you watch film too. This is really gratifying. Um, and, and like, I guess if I'm, if I'm identifying some, some differences between this staff and the previous staff, it's that, you know, I really feel on offense defense too, but on offense that they are, you know, they are attacking the opponent where they are weak, you know, they're, or, or, you know, they are identifying vulnerabilities and attacking them. And that changes from week to week. It's not the same game plan every week. It changes based on the opponent. And it's, it's not about, uh, you know, oh, we're just going to impose our will. Like, I don't care what you do. We're going to do our thing. And that will break you, your will, because, you know, we're just better than you and you'll cower in fear at our supremacy. And it's more like, I'm just going to outsmart you. Um, which like, man, I dig that. I dig that so much. Yeah. Well, there's two things. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I a hundred percent agree. And I think that the fact that the staff isn't taking a talent advantage for granted is something that really has been like one of the highlights of watching us play football this week, this year, because even against Colorado, like we are running things that are specific to the structure of their defense, the way their talent, the way that they do things. We're not just being like, oh, well, we're better. We're just going to run the base stuff that we ran against Eastern Washington or whoever else, right? Like, we're, we're, like every game plan is very specified, even to our opponents that are lesser, um, which to an extent has been the case in, at times in the past. But a lot of times it felt like we just kind of ran our base stuff. Like, especially in the run game, like, it was like, all right, well, we're an inside zone team. We run a lot of split zone. And that's what we did, and that's what we did against everybody, and that's what we were going to do, especially against the bad teams, because there's really no point for us to mix it up. But like even this week, we saw stuff where, um, well, it was kind of cool because we saw a new action out of the backfield where 
Uh, Bo Nix turns and looks like he's going to be just doing a normal mesh with the back, but the back is actually uh, bubbling out for a pitch. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw that both used as the run, we saw it used as a keeper, and we saw it as a, as a throwback to the quarterback all in the same game, and it was a brand new action last week. We had not seen that action at any point this season. Yeah, um, and there's actually one play in that game where I think it's that play, but it gets broken somehow, and Knicks has to you know scramble out of it. I still can't quite figure out what was wrong with that play, but I, I put it in the same bucket, and I was like, yeah, it's got an exclamation point next to it in my database, because it's like, ooh, a new thing against a totally overmatched opponent. Who does that, you know? Yeah, and like a, a trend line that has been pretty obvious this season, but has really become apparent in the last three games I think more so and maybe it's just because the sample has grown to an undeniable size is that opponents like opposing defensive coordinators respect our ability to throw the ball downfield now and so you're seeing a lot of two high shells which is like oh, yeah. if you're an offensive coordinator that wants to attack angles and, gra and grass in the run game if you're playing against a two high shell there's a lot of different ways to do that um, and so we've seen a really wide range of different gap schemes in our in our run game um, that kind of seems to endlessly grow week to week as well and it's it's what's made this offense so much better than last year's version is one the threat of actually throwing the ball and throwing the ball vertically um but two the fact that because of that threat it's fundamentally altered how teams are approaching us structurally um as as defenses uh, and that's something that's been like ucla played a ton of too high um, obviously when the field condenses teams play less of it but like between the 20s or between the 30s we're seeing almost exclusively too high coverages because everyone's terrified that we're just going to throw Troy Franklin right over the top of them um, or, or, or any of our guys. Right. And so that, that to me is something that needs to be highlighted because it's, it's fundamentally changing the way that we're allowed to run the ball versus years past. Uh, yes. I'm glad that you said that because that's exactly where I was going to go with this is that like, you know, so I grade Oregon's offensive line, Oregon's offensive line grades up very well this year. It does not grade out, you know, uh, on the whole better than the 2019 or 2021 lines. It grades out basically the same. However, Oregon's enjoying sort of a better success rate or more consistently superior success rate. Part of that is I think, you know, the backs are, uh, you know, a little more dynamic than they've been in the past. Um, but I think the larger part of it is really, you know, it, it, it's not that, you know, suddenly the offensive line, you know, under brilliant tutelage, you know, has become a bunch of, you know, killers. There's actually a couple problems with the line, frankly, you know, Harper and Powers Johnson are still kind of kids and they still sort of make mistakes, especially in the run mm -hmm. game. Um, really what's going on more than anything else, far more than anything else is exactly as you just said. It's because Oregon is a much more credible threat to drop the bomb if you bring the safeties into the box that is keeping safeties out of the box. And so that, you know, for four years, what did every Oregon fan on every message board talks about? is like, oh man, I hate the run game. Running is so stupid. It's always like, and they're always just running into linemen's butts and I hate it so much and you know, it was sort of frustrating because you know i was like their rush efficiency rate is really good man you should be loving this run game but uh to the extent that that was true it was true because there were safeties in the box and like you got to keep the you know just like a brush back pitch in baseball you got to like let those dudes know that they're not allowed to be there um and the way that you do that is hit bombs against them when they bring safeties down and that was the super frustrating thing about the previous staff you know and and the previous quarterback which like we 
don't need to get into any of the, you know, the whys and wherefores that might be. It was just obvious on film that it was the case that there would be deep shots available that the the Oregon quarterback was not taking. And that is no longer true. Um, and it, it has an appreciable effect on opposing defenses and by extension by what the run game is allowed to do. And so now opposing defenses have to simply pick their poison. They play the safeties back and they get run all over. They play the safeties up and they get passed all over. That's why Oregon gets to get whatever they want. It's, it's as straightforward as that. Um, but it's, you know, lethal. It's a lethal combination. Yeah. I don't think that Oregon fans realize how good the 2019 offensive line was partially because the way that that offense functioned was like so dependent on their success, but it was so dependent on their success against stacked boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, if you gave 2022, the 2019 offensive line, it would just be unfair because <laughs> yeah. that, that offensive line with these types of boxes would have just done absurd amounts of damage. Um, but this, I think that's also a really good segue. Um, Doug, feel free to pop in here whenever you want as well, but like the amount of empty that is being used. And sometimes it's just like Oregon's going to come out and it just could be like the third drive of the game. The second just could be a random drive. They're going to be an 11 personnel, but they're just going to play empty for six straight plays. Uh, really, really spread you out. And because of how effective the run game is, we get you into a personnel grouping where linebackers are isolated in space, which is something that we did to Cal quite a bit, uh, but is also something that we did against um, UCLA and, and Colorado, actually. The, the seam route to uh, Franklin in the first half strikes me as, as one of these where just from a spacing standpoint with the athletes that Colorado was deploying, just trying to match us from a personnel standpoint, it got Franklin basically a free release to run run into a soft spot and zone mm -hmm. between that a super deep safety and a linebacker who has no business being out over him. Um, and so, it's just the I can't I can't rave enough about the deployment. I would love to sit in on install in fall camp. Oh, um, yeah, because I don't know how like this seems like a ton of offense to install. And they just keep un un unveiling more and more of it every week. And the execution on the new stuff or in really any different personnel grouping doesn't seem to drop off um, from one grouping to another. Well, it's iterative. You know, they're not, this isn't like Chip, Chip Kelly over the first four years at UCLA where like every week he'd throw out the playbook and write a new playbook. This is like, it's the same playbook, but with a new thing. Um, so like, I mean, it strikes, I don't know, I have no idea how football practices operate, but I sort of expect that it's sort of like, okay, guys, here's the new thing we're doing this week. Uh, you know, how, how hard can that possibly be? You know, as opposed to what UCLA was doing, which is like how anybody kept up with that is beyond me. Yeah. yeah well, it's like layering in, they're just layering in another, another level every week. Right. And I, I love the, we saw this early in the year, they were playing around with it a couple of times. And then I think we've seen it pretty consistently, at least one drive a game, the 21 personnel look with, with dollars and Noah back there. And mm -hmm. I really like the, you know, I really like that look. I was calling for that, you know, in the off season, I think. And, uh, but it's been as effective as all the other things are doing, right? That's, I think to your point, QB, the thing that's most amazing is no matter what personnel grouping they're in, no matter what formations are in, no matter what, uh, what they're trying to do, they're, <laughs> they're, they're having success with all of it. Yeah. Well, there's two things like, so the first thing is Hithliday is exactly right. Like they're not, it's not a different playbook. Like the concepts, yeah. Uh, carry over between personnel groupings and formations, but I've just I've never seen an Oregon team 
carry this many personnel groupings and formations and not have execution drop-offs where guys are doing the wrong things or misaligning or you know what I mean? Like there's just mm-hmm. the, like the overall execution, the error rate within all these different changing and moving parts and motions and, and, and different wrinkles. Like we even saw some, some double stack, like Art Bryles, Josh Heupel, Tennessee, like wide, wide stack, wide split stuff last week. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of those clips in my article. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, to your point about empty, it's a it's about 14% of all meaningful snaps that they've taken, where there's not a running back, you know, next to the quarterback anyway. Usually they have a running back in, but you know he's elsewhere in the formation, um, which is huge. And then uh, 14% is a very large number. A- and what is um, especially there's a couple of especially interesting things about it. Oregon actually runs out of that. Um, fairly often, um, you know, which, which helps definitely keep the defense honest and it's, you know, taking advantage of Nix's athleticism. And the other thing that's interesting is that a pretty substantial fraction of their empty sets are, um, too tight end, you know, empty sets because they, you know, they really trust the tight ends, you know, to catch the ball, which is sort of like, to me, I think the most amazing personnel thing about this, or at least the one that I certainly didn't predict, I, I sort of think uh, QB, you and I were on a podcast during the summer in which we were talking about uh, the strong possibility that Bo Nix would, uh, would, would be an excellent quarterback at Oregon because like all the things that were holding him back at Auburn didn't obtain um, at Oregon. And, you know, we sure look pretty smart about that. Um, but the one that I didn't predict um, and, and has been such a pleasant surprise is how deep and good this tight end room has been you know, especially when you take into account, you know, the, the unfortunate loss of Spencer Webb, you know, they, they have four excellent tight ends. I can't think of a single team in the country that can do, you know, not Georgia, not Iowa. Georgia's got four. They do have four. Well, but we don't really see them on the field. No, no, they don't, they have more, they have such an insane top end that they don't bother going all the way down to the fourth guy. Um, and they really, they don't really go beyond too often because they've got two unicorns at the top of the depth chart. Sure. They, they definitely have the quality, but I, I know what you're getting at here. Um, it, like, and, and, and it's not like there's, you know, a top two and a bottom two in Oregon's rotation. You know, they, they pretty freely, you know, rotate out. I mean, they, they might be pulling names out of hat in terms of who goes in on, on the plays, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, they're very, about that, Hith? sorry, Dan, um, do the, it feels to me just as a casual observer, you know, a lot of times when you have multiple tight ends, right, you've got you've got the inline blocking tight end and you've got the receiving tight end. It feels like they use them fairly interchangeably. Is that is that true from your charting or they're fairly interchangeable? The guy that they trust the most to be the 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 thumper, you know, excluding the I formation fullback stuff in which QB is right. Yeah. That's been Herbert. But the guy that, you know, when they're when they're in the shotgun, if they have a you know a block that definitely needs to be made, they're trusting Matavau to do that more than anything else. But other than that, you know, and and they sort of in sort of clutch got to have the catch situations they've been trusting ferguson more with that but you know beyond but those are sort of just like blips in the data really yeah you're pretty much right they're they're using them very interchangeably they sure throw all of them it feels like without any question and they've all you know been very sure-handed i think it was one game where Ferg, you know, had a couple of drops, I think, early in the season, but they've all been very sure-handed. Yes, yeah, Stanford, there were two drops. It was very um, perplexing, and they haven't recurred since. You know, I didn't make a big deal of it at the time because I didn't think it was going to be an issue going forward, and it hasn't been. Uh, no. But yeah, there are five different Oregon tight ends in 2022 who have catches if you catch uh, if you count Josh Connerly as a tight end on that play. Yeah, and, and the one thing I'd say is, like, I did, 
I was never really all that concerned with the drops that took place in the Stanford game because when you study these guys on film, like they're all natural hands catchers. Like these aren't guys that fight the ball. These aren't guys that let the ball into their body. Like they they don't like I don't know they it you could typically like guys that struggle with drops are usually pretty easy to identify just by the way that they track the ball and the way that they approach the catch. Right, like they tighten up. They usually let the ball into their body. Like that's not that's not any of these tight ends. They all catch the ball pretty organically. Like with without um. Like I always just think back to Jason Williams. Whenever I think of guys that are like very clearly not natural hands catchers, that that's kind of like the first place my mind goes as an Oregon fan. Uh, but definitely not something I worried about with with any of these guys. Um, but I, I think that what's impressed me the most about this group, and specifically with the two guys that were true friends last year, and Montevideo and Ferguson, is the like quantum leap in blocking effectiveness that's taken place over the last year like especially with Montevideo um, and like Ferguson's right there with him but Montevideo is just so huge uh, they, they get they really can displace guys like before they were more high effort high motor positional blockers and now like there, there are there are plays that come to mind pretty immediately I think that the UCLA game was kind of filled with these I think you had a couple of them in your article as well where uh, Montevideo and Ferguson are just lighting like getting their getting on connecting with with backers at the second level or or defensive ends and, and creating some serious movement um and and that's something that is pretty rare like historically for Oregon they've had like you said two different types of tight ends i think back to 2019 is a good example of this early in the year where like Hunter Camp Moyer and Ryan Bay were kind of the inline guys that that would bang and you could you could use on your split zone stuff and like really um Jacob Breland was more of a kind of a off ball detached receiving tight end right um and there was pretty clear tendency with the use of those players when they would come in per, in different personnel groupings where right now they're like coach dillingham is calling the offense with whichever grouping of tight ends or however many tight ends are in and so defensively there's really not a lot of tell as to what we're planning to do when we go into a 12 or a, or even a 22 personnel um, not, not that we've seen that a ton this year. I don't know that we have, but a 12 personnel package, because like you said, we'll go empty out of it. And in Montevideo and Ferguson or whoever, like they're very effective pass catchers. And so like, how do you defend it? Cause like, if you walk linebackers out over those guys, they're just going to win in one-on-one they're faster. They're more athletic. They're big. Um, they're really good in space. They can make guys miss and break tackles. I think Montevideo's touchdown catch against, uh, against Colorado was pretty impressive. Like just the way that like he, he had good feel for space, caught the ball, turned up field, and was able to dive into the end zone. Um, and that's a 6'6", 260-pound tight end. So I just I can't rave enough about that group. That group has been unbelievably impressive to me. And just it really, uh, it's it's good to see Cam McCormick get out there and play well. Well, yeah, I mean, you have, you know, two true sophomores who, of course, they took a leap, you know, going from their freshman to their sophomore year, you know, who doesn't. And then you've got like, you know, Patrick Herbert, who's been on the team since 2019, um, but like has sort of been fighting injuries. Uh, and then you've got the king of that, you know, Cam McCormick, who's, you know, he's he's going to graduate with a doctorate, you know, from U of O. He's been here for so long. Um, the, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, these guys are, are getting close to being veterans and, and, you know, as Doug suggests, they're, um, you know, they're being used, you know, throughout the rotation, you know, so guys aren't just, you know, warming the bench all game long. Like they're, you know, each one of those guys is, is, uh, you know, is, 
meaningfully and usefully contributing to the schematic complexity, you know, of this offense. And it's sort of like the unsung heroes um, of the group. All right, that's been too much hoppy talk. There's three things from Oregon's numbers that sort of concern me uh, or from watching the film. Um, the number one that I would say is uh, their perimeter blocking on screen passes has been pretty hot and cold. Um, they're actually not as their their worst playset has been uh, outside screens um, and far outside runs. You know, like you know, super wide zone that sort of thing. Uh, QB, have you noticed something similar? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple people that stand out as kind of key culprits, in my mm -hmm. opinion, in those situations. If we want to get into that. Uh, I don't know that we need to, I just wanted to flag it as like, you know, Oregon for a long time had been like, you know, the, the outside screen game had been like a huge part of their offense. And in particular, like, for example, last year uh, against UCLA, you know, that game in the Rose bowl where UCLA, it, they have a different defensive coordinator and staff now. So this doesn't obtain as much, but like, um, last year, the UCLA was such a crowd, the box team that like the way that you wanted to beat them was to throw a bunch of screens. And, um, it was, you know, pretty good timing and Micah Pittman, um, who's apparently having a lot of fun at Florida state now, um, is, uh, <laughs> like really, he turned it around for that game. He became like a great, you know, blocker in that game. And I would like to see something like that happen for some of, you know, I would like to see the light come on for some of Oregon's, uh, uh wide receivers. Interestingly enough, uh, Dante Thornton, uh, I was great. just going to say that he's, he, he's our, he, he's I know he grades blocker. out the best for me is the blocker. And like a lot of people are just like, where's Dante Thornton? He's not catching passes. And you know, I don't know why that, you know, it's just vagaries of college football. I don't read too much into it, but it is interesting. You know, people ask me like, is he even on the field? And I'm like, yeah, he is, dude. <laughs> he's blocking really well. Um, so that's yeah, nice that sprint he made down the field in the Colorado game. He didn't, you know, then it, I honestly, I think I actually put it on the running back there. If he was in position to make that final block that I think it was Bucky could have, could have taken it to the house if he would have cut back inside mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and I thought that was just a tremendous hustle play. Yeah, no, like, I, so Chase, Chase Coda is weird. Like, you would expect a guy who's, like, like a really high motor, like, big team effort guy um, and, and a veteran who's been playing college football for what seems like a decade um, to be, like, one of our best perimeter blockers. But he's consistently stuck out to me as somebody who – I don't know if it's a strength. I don't think it's a strength issue. I don't know if it's just so a, either. It's I think he like, takes bad angles. I, yeah, I just don't. it's sort of it's sort of a leverage. And, and like, I think he 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 enters the block a little too high. Like he's not sort of bending his knees and going up into the block to jack the dude up. Um, And it's sort of, you know, it means that a DB can get around him. Yeah, like I've just seen like he makes it kind of easy on guys to set the edge on some of those perimeter screens sometimes. Um, which is something that Thornton does not do like Thornton. And so with, with Coda going to be missing some time here with that knee injury, and I don't think he's going to be back here. I mean, shoot, he might not be back by the time we do our kind of end of year review prior to the conference title game. Um, Thornton is going to be taking those primary reps now at that position. And so I actually kind of expect our perimeter screen game to improve just by having him on the field for a higher, um, higher, share of the snaps um and yeah i would love to see him get targeted more in the passing game i know there's been some drop issues with him extending back to fall camp and in the early part of this season but uh he he clearly is very fast and he's a he's a tremendous blocker and he plays with a lot of effort so i'm hoping to see the light bulb come on for him and him kind of step into this role and run with it a little bit because next year code is going to be gone and it's up for grabs so uh, really, really, really happy with 
Thornton's development, but I 100% agree with you. And I think that some of our offensive linemen have been a little slow to get out on some of the tunnel inside yeah, tunnel sometimes. screens. Um, uh, I will say about the perimeter blocking, though, like it does not strike me as from a lack of effort. You know, I, I don't see like prima donna wide receivers who are like, you know, this isn't my job. Uh, you know, not, they're, they're, they're really going into it. In fact, like, you know, some of Oregon's most like lethal, you know, Troy Franklin, Chris Hudson, you know, are really giving it their all, you know, like they're not you know, the, you know, real team player, you know, kind of stuff, which I enjoy seeing. Um, I just sort of want to see the technique cleaned up. And one uh, thing too, is that we like for all the things that, that Jalen red wasn't, he was one of the more dynamic. Well, he was perimeter. ferocious. Yeah. Like pound for pound. He's probably the best perimeter blocker that we've had period. <laughs> like that. Yeah, I he, can remember. he really seemed to enjoy it too. <laughs> yeah. And like, so like, yeah, Chris, Chris Hudson is a little bit of a drop off, uh, blocking out of the slot from that. But I think anybody was going to be a drop off out of the slot from like, uh, and it, that's one of those things that kind of goes unappreciated by like the casual fan. Um, but it's something that I always really appreciated about Jalen Redden. So, yeah, I, that's another thing. One more anecdotal thing on the screen game is, again, our screen game was really, really good in 2019. Um, and a lot of that was because you're playing a lot of compressed defensive formations. Mm -hmm. Right now, the angles and fitting at the second level can be a little bit more difficult for some of your linemen in the screen game because there's a lot more space. Um, things are just more spread out. Teams are play not playing as quite as tight. Uh, and so that can make it difficult for a guard to get to a spot because the aiming point is no longer seven yards away. It's 15 yards away. Sure. Um, and so something to consider as well. Uh, concern number two that I have is um, as fun as it is to watch uh, Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington sort of uh, dance their way into making something out of nothing on plays. There's a little too much of it. Like there are, there's definitely been at times where I'm like, dude, the blocking was there. Just follow your blocks, kid. Um, have you noticed something similar? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely been uh, more so with Bucky than with Noah. Yeah. Um, from, from my film study, I, I don't chart it. So I'm just kind of going off a of memory and feel here. Um, but like there, you could see, I don't know. I think it's improved a little bit like since, cause I think it was a real problem early in the season. Mm -hmm. Um, especially again, it's more for Bucky than Noah. Cause I feel like Noah's a little bit more decisive. Um, but it's also like no, Noah will kind of embrace contact a little bit more willingly earlier in runs and just try to get, get positive yardage. Whereas Bucky's always looking to make the next cut and to break it, he's more of a daylight runner, um, and I and I and I can appreciate both things. And I, it's almost kind of the opposite of the Verdell effect, right? Like for Bucky, it's like I, occasionally you want to just like have him be a little bit more decisive, put his foot in the ground, and hit it. Uh, whereas with Verdell, it was always like teaching that kid to slow down and actually read the block and play off of it. Um, and so I think over time, it'll be something that we probably see adjust. But I agree. I, I, there has been a few times, especially I think being more situationally aware down in distance, like if, if we're in second and two, I don't mind it as much. But if we're in third and one or fourth and one or any kind of short yard situation where conversion is really important, specifically on our half of the field, I I 100% agree, like being situationally aware and realizing that you just got to go get that one yard, which means putting your foot in the ground and getting upfield is important. Last concern that I have, and it's not, this one's kind of trivial. It's just an interesting thing to note is, uh, uh, Oregon is not hitting explosive, like truly explosive rushing 35 plus yards. Um, 
at at a rate that their chunk yardage rushing would predict. So basically, Oregon has um, uh, uh, just a huge number of 10 plus yard runs. They're actually number two in the country in runs of over 10 yards, but they're pretty mediocre team. Like prior to garbage time, Oregon's only had four runs over um, 35 yards. Uh, there was the 36 yarder by Irving um, against BYU. Uh, Bo Nix had one against Stanford. Um, there was that long touchdown run by uh, Noah Whittington against Arizona. And then actually their longest run of the year was uh, this last week um, by by Bucky Irving, which was interesting for as much as I was just, you know, making fun of him for, for dancing too much. He, he dances in the backfield and then creates that one out of nothing, which is kind of fun. Um, but basically there, there's sort of a, you can predict, um, 30 plus yard runs based on the number of 10 plus yard runs for most teams. And for Oregon, y- you would expect about three times as many explosive, ru- or, you know, 30 plus yard runs, um, than they, rather than four. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I'm not really sure why that is actually. I, I have, you know, I have two anecdotes for you. Go for it. First one, perimeter blocking, like typically mm-hmm. what changes like those, the, those like, kind of medium explosive runs so like full on 35 plus yard runs is a receiver picking up that third level block and sustaining that third level block and so if if we haven't been great in the screen game with it why would we be elite and in the run game with it um so that's something that can improve and then the other piece of it is i like just from a skill set standpoint these guys uh i i would i would categorize both winning actually i'd categorize all of our backs as 20 yard runners none of them have elite top end speed they're all quicker than fast they're all better in the short area, and they do a good job of, of getting what's there. But they, these guys, these are guys that are all going to get tracked in the open field by better talent, by faster defensive backs. But definitely, you know, what the numbers say is that Oregon is getting its, you know, super explosiveness through the air rather than on the ground, which is a bit of a change, you know, compared to, like, say, the Chip Kelly years. Um You know, so uh, Oregon is averaging about uh, – oh, and the other thing is – um uh, there's now been a big enough sample that the that the offensive performance against Georgia is just totally diluted out of the offense at this point. Like the numbers, you know, whether you exclude the Georgia game or the Eastern Washington game or both, it does not affect the offensive numbers at all in any of the stats that I collect. Um, although keeping in mind, I, I also exclude garbage time. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the, the rushing performance has been super duper efficient, like crazy efficient. It's about 74% efficiency that they get enough That's yards. That's insane. That's yeah, which insane. is... It is absolutely bonkers, you know, about three quarters, which like good luck stopping, you know, just like good luck, you know, and, and, and having a super efficient rushing offense, um, especially in this league that does not have very good rush defenses, um, including Utah, sort of surprisingly, um, or maybe not surprisingly, if you've been watching in this year. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, the Oregon just doesn't really have any, you know, great rush defenses up ahead of them, um, which probably means that they're or behind them, uh, which sort of means, that, you know, probably the rush efficiency number is a little bit, you know, inflated, but it's still like 74% is just an absolutely bonkers number. Like, even if it's five points inflated, 69% is a bonkers number. Like um, it's uh, they, they basically get whatever they want in the run game. And like an, a super efficient rushing offense is the master key that opens all doors. You can do so much with it. You know, it sets up your pass game. It sets up, you know, your, your ball control offense. It means that you can manipulate the clock. However that you please it means you can keep the ball out of the opposing quarterback's hands. And there are some good quarterbacks in the pack 12. Like it's, 
yeah, it's great. It's definitely Oregon's, you know, most versatile and useful tool. However, they're only getting about six yards per carry adjusted, which is still a pretty good number, but it's not like super elite, you know, it's definitely championship caliber, but it's not like scare the pants off of you, um, in terms of, uh, you know, explosiveness. And probably for that reason, um, for, for the reason we were just discussing, you know, the top end speed issue. Um, although about 20% of their, um, uh, carries gain 10 plus yards, which is again, like an, that's an elite number. Um, on the other hand, the passing off offense is hitting 65% efficiency, which again is great. You know, like the championship caliber, my experience is 60%. So that's, you know, a full standard deviation better than even championship caliber. And this is the number that really knocks my socks off. They are averaging better than 10 yards per attempt adjusted. Um, and by adjusted, I mean like any, any play that goes over 40 yards, I just hack down to 40 yards because because field position winds up affecting it more than anything else. If you, if you allow the full number anyway, the, um, uh, the, yeah, 10, 10 yards per attempt. Every time the Bo Nix releases the ball from his hands, Oregon gets 10 yards. Like, holy crap. Like, yeah. Like, holy crap. Like I, I tweeted this out earlier today. Um, after last week, you know, these are national ranks. So Oregon nationally on offense ranks first in points per drive, touchdowns per drive, available yards, success rate drive efficiency and they rank second in yards per play nationally yeah it's just you know it's bonkers and they're getting a 25 percent uh rate of passes gaining 15 plus yards you know which means it's not just you know hitting a stop route and then the receiver sort of falls forward to get the first down it's you know they're consistently hitting intermediate you know passes to to really move down the field one out of four one out of four times the Bonix releases the ball from his hand, he gets uh, a 15 yard uh, or more, you know, gain. It's just like, good luck. Good luck stopping that offense. Um, oh, and it's also not a one dimensional offense because you also have to put up with this run game that's 75% efficient. You're just like, yeah, good luck. Good luck stopping that defenses. Good luck putting four stops in a row together in order to get the ball back. Yeah, so this is a great time for me to transition and start our. You kind of already started a little bit earlier, Hithliday, but our Bonix Love Fest for a minute here. Mm. Um, like all all of those numbers uh, as evidence here, but like the the thing that is most impressive to me, and I think it's really, I think it's what it's showing is his maturity. Um, is the well, first of all, the command that he's playing with because he's in complete control of the offense. Um, I wish I knew like what called plays were and what when he was checking. Like if just. Give me like a little red indicator on the screen when he's actually checked plays because I I do think he's making a positive impact in the game, um, in that standpoint. But also just the the patience, like he's not forcing the ball just to force the ball. And I, I think the last time I can really remember there being like a decent sized sample set of throws where I felt like he was just forcing it to to try to throw it was Stanford. We had, he had a couple deep balls that were thrown yeah. late that didn't really that weren't good throws. But now he's just taking what's there. He has no problem dumping down to the backs. Whenever there is pressure, which isn't very often, he's creating space and he's finding checkdowns. He, he's always aware of where his hot is. We never like like you always see the like I, over the years like people would send me like screenshots of games where uh, Anthony Brown is taking a sack and the running back is over in the flat by himself with nobody around. That never happens. Mm-hmm. The back always gets hit in those situations. The last three games. And because of that, uh, his efficiency numbers throwing the ball, he's the highest completion percentage in all power five. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't love raw completion percentage as a as a stat for a variety of reasons, but yeah. like, but I, I will say, you know, one of the things that I track on my tally sheet is, uh, you know, that the quarterback threw a catchable ball, right? Because I'm trying to tease out, you know, whose fault is it that the ball was not caught or or was a failed play? Um, and so I, you know, I got to track that, and like, I've never seen anything like this, you know, in turn, like he, I can count on one hand in nine games that he's played. Uh, of uncatchable balls that he's thrown, you know, excluding throwaways, of course, those are meant not to be caught. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, where he is trying to put it on the receiver and it, it is actually a catchable ball, it's like, on the, you know, it's like 99%. You know, it's Jesus. I mean, like, and what a, what a, um, a big difference compared to uh, previous quarterbacks that Oregon has played. Yeah, no, I like I would flat out take what we're getting for Bo Nix now over any quarterback in the that I've watched and uh, watching Oregon other than Marcus his last year. And in some ways, Bo has been way more efficient throwing the ball than Marcus was that year. It w- it should be said uh, a lot of what we have just said about Bo Nix is predicated on the offensive line protection that he is receiving. One hundred percent. I, I still think that there, you know, the people who are inclined to talk about, you know, bad bone Nicks or Auburn bone Nicks, you know, that there's probably, you know, that, that, that strain has probably not been conquered from his system. It's just, it, it's irrelevant because who the hell is Oregon going to play that, you know, can, 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 you know, if UCLA couldn't do it, then nobody's going to do it. Not in the Pac-12. Um, yeah, not, we have not to wait till a full game or a playoff game. Yeah, and then we'll just see. Um, but you know, if, if they're in a, a good bowl game or they're in a playoff game, you know, sort of mission accomplished <laughs> at that point. You know what I mean? But I'm going to pat myself and you on the back here a little bit on this. Like this accuracy was very predictable. Like watching, like people would look at the raw, like you just said, they look at raw statistical output from a completion percentage standpoint, and they would indict him, say he's inaccurate, say he's this or that, he's just like a backyard baller where he just wants to scramble around and try to throw the ball. Like no, like I'm fairly certain he didn't want to scramble. (laughs) No, yeah, I'm very, I'm very certain now after watching him, like kind of settle in and realize that he's safe um, in the comforting arms of our offensive line. Or, you know, but, I, I just sort of joked about that, but I mean, I do observe quarterbacks who I think have happy feet syndrome um, or imagine phantom pressure. And that ain't him. No, no. He's like, he's very in control. And like, the, I think one of his best traits, um, I'll, I'll circle back here in a second, but one of the, one of his best traits is his, he's got very good presence and feel for the pocket. Like he, mm-hmm. he can make, uh, micro adjustments in the pocket and because he's so he has such a strong foundation mechanically that's why he's so accurate it's it's all mechanical uh his he has fantastic mechanics um and because he's got that mixture of really good feel and instincts in the pocket um and really good mechanics he's able to make adjustments in the pocket move slide escape and then make accurate throws because he always gets his feet under him he always gets his his hips right and his shoulder levels are always correct and so i just i i love to nerd out on that stuff and he has just been so good well um, and, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves but hey it is uh you know i happy i hate washington week you know i just finished watching uh, a game's worth of uh, michael Penick's throw throws and like mechanically sound is not how I would describe his throwing motion. Um, and it results, you know, when pressure does, you know, wind up in the backfield, which happens with uh, Washington's offensive line, since I think it's the most poorly developed offensive line in the pac 12, um, that like, but it, it just all goes to, you know, like his completion percentage and, or, or, you know, catchable ball rate just goes to hell. Um, 
and and that's you know i think you're absolutely right like not having a, a firm uh mechanical foundation for your throw you know hurts you unless you are operating under nominal conditions which like most pac-12 teams are not going to yeah well i i have a little thing against lefties because it just looks weird um and no, i well. never was able to figure it out but like part of that is like his with Penix, as i've noticed that too is just like his feet he's very static his feet don't follow mm -hmm. his eyes and that's like the best part about nicks like he can get through a full field progression and he has shown the ability to do that consistently this year well you can watch his base you can yeah. watch his base go bloop 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 bloop, bloop yeah but it just follows through yeah there, there's complete connection whereas like when i watch Penix at times especially when there's pressure um his base will get very static as his eyes go and then that's where Aaron throws happen and, and yeah so he sort of makes these fallen away throws or he tries to sidearm it um you know kind of sling it as opposed to throwing the ball you know with its with a sound base in a mechanically appropriate you know manner i don't know we don't need to dump on michael Penix too much there'll be plenty of time for that um over the next seven days uh, it's just like it it was very interesting to me because i was you know that that was the tape that i i went from watching bo nix's tape on one day to watching michael Penix's film the next day and it's sort of like oh i see a difference yeah no it's there and then also like last thing i want to say is um nick's nix's field awareness um and like down and distance situations as a runner has been just awesome like he he knows when to protect himself he knows when to go get the yard and he's really really good in open space of making the first guy miss and create and get and getting whether it's into the end zone or um and like he's missed some reads like i think there was a bad read in the first half of the colorado game in the zone read um, but for the most part, he's made very good decisions. And even when he's made a bad read, he's been a good enough athlete to get it done anyway. Shall we move on to defense? Yeah, if, we have, if we have to. <laughs> I think we have to. It kind of sounds like you're more down on this defense than I am. I, they grade up fairly well if you exclude garbage time. No, I, I actually agree with you. There's there's a few things that still bother me about it, but it, it's I mean, it's not as it's not as knock your socks off as the offense. But I mean, <laughs> the idea that this is a garbage, you know, defense is it's no true. What, one of both the of only our... thing I would the only the only thing I worry about with the defense their third down conversion rate is still still not good. You know what? Their third down conversion rate between the twenties uh, could certainly be better. But you know, I can tell you from watching it, the particular types of throws that they are vulnerable to are not they are not options in the red zone um, because of the nature of field compression and, and just safeties being able to back up the ILBs. Um, I've really been pleasantly surprised by how much better the secondary has been than I was expecting it to be. You know, in the off season, it's really just. The way that Oregon is playing their ILBs creates opportunities for passes over the middle, um, but it's simply not a threat in the red zone, which is why Oregon's, you know, defensive red zone touchdown percentage rate. Sorry, that was a mouthful, but I think everybody knows what I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, is very good. Um, you know, it, it's a, it, it, it's a, it, yes, it would be nice if they're, you know, they were forcing three and outs more often and, and they're not for that reason, but like. You know, they're stopping touchdowns. So my, I guess like we'll just work in reverse order here of last time. Like, let me give my biggest gripe about the defense, and then we can focus on some of the other things here. My biggest problem with the defense is it is generating a substantial amount of pressure, whether it's through um, whether it's through guys just winning one on ones um, against offensive linemen, whether it's through simulated pressures or just or, or bringing five, six, or seven man pressures. My biggest issue is is that the conversion rate of our pressure rate to sacks um, is really really yeah, bad. It's terrible. And, 
and a lot of the explosive plays that Oregon gives up come off of those mi- missed opportunities. And that like, if you if Oregon could just eliminate those, the statistics off defensively would improve substantially. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, really the problem is that Oregon doesn't have an elite pass rusher. Um, they, there, I I would, there, there's at least three teams in the PAC 12 that have better, um, you know, outside pass rush, you know, than Oregon does. Um, it's not the worst, uh, either. And they are sort of consistently putting pressure on the quarterback. Um, but like getting home and getting, I mean, there's a reason why sacks are called sacks. You know, it's like, it's comparable to, you know, sacking a city during a war. Um, they're absolutely devastating to drives and like Oregon is not devastating drives in that way because they're not generating sacks. But once you, you know, take that into account, what they are doing without generating sacks is, excellent like their their defensive performance numbers given this sack rate are much better than they should be which is why i am not down on this defense although of course it would be nice to get sacks and have a better defense yeah no i'm not down on the defense like i think i'm like one of our good friends like i know you talk to him a lot too rob bowerman from who does beta rank is really mm-hmm. down on the oregon defense and i think some of his criticism is fair and, and but some of it is um kind of unfounded um but it's it's backed up by some certain yeah he and i've been going back and forth on this for a long time about like when he starts the garbage time exclusion i think he's being uh, he's counting too much i I think he's including what effectively winds up being play against uh you know the developmental squad um and yeah. uh you know what are you going to do like it, and i understand why he does that and really why any you know advanced statistical system that's trying to do the entire country at once instead of 100%. you know i'm doing it in a bespoke manner cuz i'm watching the game and i can see like oop they put in the backups you know oop you know that they've 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 qualitatively changed you know one team to the other the the nature of their play calling like i you know you can only do that if you're watching games and so therefore i don't really blame him but like i think that is the nature of the the disagreement um, um, and you know, it's fine. You know, adults can disagree. Yeah. hundred percent. And while we're talking about coverage, um, let's start with the safety group because this is a group that has been the most impressive to me, um, relative to my expectations coming into the season. Uh, Brian Addison has become yeah. like a legitimately good safety. Yeah, I'm I'm really pleased to the extent that, you know, not that I I don't get this twisted. I am not happy that uh, Jamal Hill was ejected for targeting, um, and that Oregon will missing him in the first half um, against Washington. That said, the way that Oregon is compensating for it is, you know, Addison had been playing exclusively as the dime, you know, coming in for the dime, you know, packages, and without Hill, um, the way that they've been dealing with it is they move uh, Bennett Williams down to be the nickel, and they move you know addison off of the bench to be you know the high safety and take williams spot i like that configuration against most of the passing offenses in the pac 12 um better than their you know than the one that they have with hill in. the exception being teams that want to throw to the tight end um then i like to have hill in but washington is not one of those teams and so Mm -hmm. i don't really worry about that no, and, and the I, reason, as you say, is because Addison has improved so much and is so reliable as a high safety, um, not just in dime packages, but in their sort of base, which is a nickel, which is a weird thing to say, but um, I guess it's 2022 and base can be nickel. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's because of him. It's because of his improvement. Yeah, well, he, so well, let's talk about why. One, he's the most rangy safety by a, like a pretty wide margin. Like mm-hmm. 
Steve, for all Steve Stevens has been really impressive to me this year because of his consistency, and really that shouldn't be surprising to anybody that's watched film on him over the last few years. He's always been smart. He typically gets himself in the right spot. He's a willing tackler. He's he's very reliable, right? But where he can get into trouble, like for instance, let's just I'm I'm gonna single him out, and this isn't his fault because this was a completely busted coverage. But on that 81 yard touchdown last week against Colorado, a, a faster player might still be able to get over the top of that and at least stop it from being a touchdown explosive play. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, that's just we all have our limitations physically. Um, but that's what Addison has done is he's injected this element of range and ability to overlap coverage when we play our too high, whether it's a two man or quarters or I mean, any I mean, Oregon plays so many different coverages that it doesn't really doesn't matter which one. It's just a matter of that. Like he's a threat to get over the top and overlap coverage on basically every route on his side of the field um, or as a center field safety. So that has been like, I think something that's really been missing from the Oregon defense Outside of uh, Javon Holland's freshman year, I think was the last time that we really had a reliable deep safety with the with the kind of range that Addison provides. Um, and we've had a lot of box safeties, and so it's just nice to have somebody that can really run uh, cover ground and get over the top and, and actually make plays on the ball. Well, and best example of that happens during Q3. Um, it's in the UCLA game in yep. which, um, you know, one of UCLA's big plays that came early in the game or earlier in the game was a, a wheel route that they actually hadn't really used that much. That was interesting about UCLA because even though Chip Kelly has a history in all these previous stops of, of using a lot of wheel routes that hadn't really shown up in their previous uh, uh, six games, but then they busted it out for this game and, you know, they, they, they hit a big one um, on that. Well, Addison... Uh, and a subsequent play on, on a drive where if UCLA converts that third down, that maybe the game, you know, starts to go in a bit, you know, that maybe UCLA plays themselves back into that game. Um, but nope, Addison uh, sniffs it out and, uh, and he just, he, his trigger to contact time is measured in microseconds, man. Like it, he is down so fast on that back and blows him up for a tackle for loss. And like, you know, slower safety might not have prevented the first down on that one. Um, but he not only prevents it, he, he gets a tackle for loss and, yeah. and it's because of his speed. Yeah, no. And that's been a, a really welcome change. Like, I thought that was something that if they didn't address in the portal might take a year or two of recruiting um, to get solved athletically at safety and, and uh, his emergence and just the consistency that he's playing with. Um, and the fact that he has a whole nother year of eligibility left mm -hmm. is really encouraging for the safety room. Um, and he's a nickel that, well, he, he plays all over the place. So let's talk about Bennett Williams. I think he's the best and most important player on the Oregon defense. Hmm. Do you agree or disagree? I, I, for this defensive configuration, it is almost always a nose tackle, but um, no one pays attention to the big guys. Uh, in uh, uh, sure, he, uh, his versatility is super valuable uh, in that he can play all the way from the you know the way back safety to we we're seeing him against Cal plays part of a bear front, no pun intended, um, and you know running down the back from from behind. You know that's um, that's pretty astonishing for a single human being to be able to do that. Yeah, well, I just the thing I like about him is that he's not a liability in coverage when he has to carry tight ends or receivers vertically, but mm -hmm. he's he's an, he's a, he's better than most of our linebackers in the box, um, both in terms of sifting through the trash and making tackles. He's a fantastic open field tackler, um, and he's actually a plus value add when he's added as a blitzer. Um, so I I don't know, like I just think he goes kind of unheralded from the fan base, uh, and I think that he's somebody that. I think that the three most important players on our defense are him, Christian. Well, 
I think Christian Gonzalez is actually probably a little bit more important because he just locks down. He his locks side down of the his field. side of the field. <laughs> and mm-hmm. now that like, and he's shown um, pretty tremendous instincts as a zone defender too, which is like primarily at Colorado. Why I liked him so much was just like you put him on somebody and they're covered. Um, but now he's like talk about adding speed and range when you play like uh, three deep or quarters coverages. Like he had two interceptions. One of them was on his own where he, he peeled off and came downhill and had a, uh, in that Colorado game. The other one was in man coverage where that guy just was completely suffocated. Um, but, and then the third one I think would be, I would say, I would agree with you, the nose tackle position, whether it's Jordan Riley or Taki or now Keanu Williams, who is emerging. Yeah, it's been interesting to see. But I um, wanted to talk about the corners first before we move on to the defensive yeah, line. Sure. Uh, yeah, and well, I'll I'll bring it up. Uh, Triquiz Bridges. Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, I think he came in for some unfair criticism early in the year. I, I think he's been playing a lot better the last couple of games. Like, I certainly don't have any like boneheaded stuff. And in fact, I've got a number of very good plays for him. You know, he has a really um, tremendous pass breakup against Colorado. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think he's a pretty reliable cornerback. You know, at this point, I, I am interested to see going forward um, how you know they start to incorporate uh, Florence and Manning um, because I think they're playing some teams where it may make sense to put three cornerbacks on the field um, or to you know do what they were doing against Arizona and have like Gonzalez mirror their best receiver and and and, and then have you know an extra cornerback in addition to Bridges you know play on the outside um, in case that guy moves in. Um, uh, uh, but like, I, 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 you know, I am pretty confident in this, you know, this cornerback room at this point, which, you know, you definitely, I don't think I could have said that, um, you know, over the summer. Yeah, I agree. Um, hundred percent like bridges has gotten better. He still has his problems. Like this coming game is a game. I worry about him in a little bit, um, just cause the speed, um, and, and some of the different options that Washington has out wide. Uh, I think this is a game where getting Florence and Manning on the field, uh, a larger rep share would probably be valuable. But one of the things that Bridges does really well is play against the screen game and the perimeter run game. Um, he defeats blocks well and he tackles well. It's actually an area where Dante Manning has been like possibly our best corner, like in terms of just like defeating blocks and making plays on the ball. Um, unfortunately, he, he found himself with a targeting penalty uh, against uh, Arizona. Arizona, but he's playing with great physicality. Um, which is, is good to see from a guy who has a lot of like explosive range and can run with guys downfield. Uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that there's, you know, the, the three passing offenses that Oregon faces, you know, to, to end the year are, are pretty different from each other. Um, and I think that you might wind up seeing, you know, fairly different configurations of the secondary. Um, and, uh, and and yeah, it will be actually, you know, very interesting to me to see how they do that. Like Oregon, partly, you know, because they've been forced to, but partly because I, I think it's part, you know, of Lanning's DNA um, is to, you know, ch- you know, not just play like a, a single static, you know, shell um, or a single static, you know, uh, a set of personnel um, in the backfield. Like he's he's been, uh, you know, as much as I've been praising Dillingham for changing up the offensive game plan based on opponent strengths and weaknesses. And, uh, you know, I, I think I see, you know, at least as much uh, in the secondary configuration uh, on the defense. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think that's a good transition because I think I think linebacker is probably where we've seen the most improvement over the last three games. Would you agree with me on that? Um, the linebacker unit has been 
it's been interesting because of the way that Flo and Bossa have been in and out of it. Um, you know, Flo is, you know, I know that he came in in 2020, but like he just missed so much time that like is he's it your still, freshman? Uh, oh, oh, I metaphorically, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, he's played he's played six games. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you can, you know, and in that sense, like, yeah, he's playing, you know, every game that I watch him play over 2022, he's been playing less and less like a wild man, um, you know, you know, more lane disciplined, you know, and I put one of one of the clips that I put in my article this morning, um, he's not making the play, but I still wanted to draw the reader's attention to, because the, the, the line makes the play, which is, which is actually nice to see because there was backup linemen who were doing it, um, uh, uh, but you know, it was like watch flow. He is flowing, no pun intended to the play appropriately with square shoulders and, you know, with his, with, with eye and lane discipline, he's not like guessing and running with his shoulders turn to where he thinks it's going to be. And like, I couldn't have said that three weeks ago. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, you know, that's been pretty, you know, encouraging Bossa is interesting. Cause you know, he missed you know, affect, you know, one half and then one half. Um, he, he's just built so much differently than the rest of the inside linebacker group. He's sort of used differently. Um, uh, you know, uh, Colorado was sort of, you know, they, they, they connected on three of those RPO slant passes. The closest one to, that Oregon came to defending was, you know, Jeff Bossa jumping up and he almost intercepts it. Um, like it literally fans his fingertips. Um, and like, it's just, you know, his speed is excellent and he provides some interesting options in the simulated pressure game. Um, I'm not sure that his game has improved. He's sort of been playing the same. He's sort of, I think, been the same ILB that he's been since the beginning of the year. It's just an interesting addition to the room. The guys that I am um, much more uh, uh, like seeing and actually would sort of like to see play earlier in the rotation um, and maybe displace Jeffrey Bassa to be more of a situational ILB um, are 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 Brown and Leduc. Um, I really liked Brown and Leduc's game against Colorado. Yes, it's a lesser opponent, but like, I would like to see those guys take the field a little bit earlier. Like, I, I think those guys are more, more built and more capable as traditional linebackers um, for, for this defensive structure. And I'm really excited about them coming on. Okay. So I, let me, I'll, let me qualify my statement on that a little bit, because I, I think we agree on all fronts here. So for, we'll start with flow, like flow. I, I think and this is partially our, not your fault, but partially my fault and partially the fault of fans having unrealistic expectations. Like you got to remember the guy came in, he, during the COVID year, it got hurt. We didn't, there was no spring ball. There was no nothing. He was hurt for all the way until the Fresno state game. He practiced for like three weeks before that game, got hurt against Fresno state was out all the way through the rest of 21 through through spring ball of last year. Even in the Fresno game. Remember that game, just how like out of control he was playing? Yeah. Oh yeah. He was, I mean, uh, I had somebody who like, I had access to the coaching grades last year. Tell me that he graded out horribly, but he made just a ton of plays. Yeah. (laughs) And that was the nature of his physical gift. Yeah. Right. And so, but then he was again, hurt for the entire season, missed all of spring ball and wasn't even really full go until right at the beginning of camp. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, and then he gets hurt early in this season and misses some games. And so you're like, yeah, maybe there's an injury concern there. But now that he's actually playing and playing consistently, the growth week to week in him, it, to me at least, is very obvious. Like it's, you could see, like you said, he's staying square. He's playing within himself. He's playing within the scheme more and, tr- and less trying to just be the guy that makes every tackle. Like he's playing his role. 
Um, and it's not perfect. Uh, there's still things that certainly need improvement, but I'm more watching him and watching his growth week to week in the way that I would watch a true freshman's growth than in the way that you would expect a third year, third year player's growth, because he really hasn't participated in football activities at Oregon more than a true freshman has. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what I was saying in regards to, in, in regards to flow. I actually think Sewell, uh, his last few games have been his best games of the season. No, he's been nursing some minor injuries and he's getting, getting healthier, which is helping. Um, but I, I 100% agree. Keith Brown to me is like behind Keon Ware Hudson, Keith Brown to me is like the standout. Like I stepped up a ton this off season and is like a completely different player of the of the year for me for Oregon football like offense well, defense another true freshman to true sophomore you know like yeah that happens yeah but he like like he's just moving like he's lighter he's moving so well he's become an excellent player in space he can cover and he's tackling really really well I'm really excited to see him play more snaps and I um I was watching the Colorado game the other night and I 100 agree with you on Jackson Leduc as well like I think Oregon is five deep with linebackers they can win with right now um and I actually think that the the drop off from one to five is substantially smaller today than it was six weeks ago I, I look I, I I said it a second ago but I'll, I'll reiterate it and double down I, you know like I would really like to see Jeff Bossa relegated to a situational linebacker role um because I think that's that's his build and that's his specialty. Um, I would really like to see it be, you know, I would like to see a, uh, a disciplined version of Justin Flo being the second starting inside linebacker. And I would like to see Jackson LaDuke and Keith Brown being the next two guys in the rotation. And I would like to see Jeff Bossa come in on, you know, third downs where they get to do fun stuff on blitzes and sims. Uh, do you think I'm wrong about that? No, I don't, I don't disagree at all. And in fact, I, depending on Bossa's, like i don't i actually i'm not i don't i don't uh i'm not gonna say what i thought it was about i was about to say i don't know if it's if it's really applicable we'll see in the spring um i wouldn't be surprised if they if they start experimenting with him back at nickel a little bit next year i, I um, thought that that's how they were going to use him this year once they got healthy again at inside linebacker i was actually really surprised that he stuck at ilb um I, and i'm not trying to trash talk the guy at all i think he's a super valuable member of the team and i think you know there are some in particular some hybrid roles that they may want to think about you know like I, I think this this defensive structure can accommodate that um it, it's just like it's very clear like he's, you know, I might, you know, I assigned every single player, you know, grades on every single play. And like of all the players on the defense, he's the one who has the most frowny faces next to him because he gets run over, you know, I, I yeah, it's, he's just, it's he's a no tall. knock, but I mean, it's like, it, he's not Kalana Pelu bad, uh, like nowhere near, <laughs> um, but it's like, it's, it, they're cousins. You know? You're taking me back to a dark place. We don't need to go there. Sorry. About um, that. Yeah, no, you're good. It's, but no, I agree. I hundred percent agree with you. Um, I think that, I think like as a dime, like third down back, I mean, cause like, here's the deal, his sideline to sideline speed. He is a reliable tackler in space for the most yes. part. Yes, he um, is. And he's like, great in the backfield. You know, he's, he's, he's Oregon's most effective guy. If he gets into the backfield at bringing the quarterback down. Yeah, and I think that's where they need to use him most. And I just think that I think that at this point in the season, with the sample available, I think that Keith Brown for sure, and I think that if Jackson Leduc were getting a little bit more opportunity, would both be outperforming him on standard downs. Mm -hmm. Yes, I 
that's what I said. Um, all right, let's talk about the the, the outside linebackers then. Um, this one has been interesting to me um, because with DJ Johnson's injury, they they had sort of been sticking with you know uh, Johnson as the weak side and Funa as the strong side guy. But in this game against Colorado, they were just sort of using Funa as whatever OLB they needed, um, and uh, and so they were doing some interesting stuff with like they bring Jake Shipley in for some snaps. They bring Trevor Mai. Mai in for a few snaps. What have you thought about uh, the way that they have dealt with the OLB situation? Um, well, I don't. I wouldn't consider Ma'e part of that, really. He, they, he were, seemed... they were playing him as a stand-up OLB in several snaps against Colorado. Yeah, I know, but I think that that was more of a function of not having DJ available. Well, who knows when that's going to end, though? Uh, this weekend. All right. I'm pretty pretty positive. Your, I think that, your mouth to Uncle Phil's ears. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But I, my understanding was that was very precautionary. All right. Um. So, uh, but yeah, like so, I I don't really I don't feel like being mean to Trevin Maia, um, because like here's the deal. He was he was a a very linear and stiff player at 230 pounds, and now he's 275 280 pounds. And let's just say that his lateral mobility hasn't improved um, as the weight has came on. So like his his range laterally once he gets off a block is very limited, um, but what he is is very strong and he can take on blocks. And I actually think that that's something like I think Funo Funo has been very dependable, but like very clearly he's just not a very good pass rusher. He doesn't offer a lot, um, and he's not really a playmaker. He's more of a guy that's going to fulfill a role within a scheme, and that's kind of it. You really can't count on him to do a whole lot beyond whatever that one specific job is. Um, and then with DJ, I think DJ is very clearly the best player in that group. Um, but his pass rush is, it is what it is, right? It's, it's, it's inconsistent. He can beat some guys. It was really tantalizing what he was doing in the spring game. That that was my concern at the time was that, you know, it's, this might not translate into power five play. And I don't really think it has. He's fine. Like he's best, um, when they put him on the move. Like, like I think he's been like our best looper in some of the uh, like stunt game, and he's really good at that because he's so fast and he's so big, um, and he can really burst the close well. But I think that Braden Swinson in limited reps has been the most impressive pass rusher to me. The problem That's, is he just well can't. that was oh, I'm sorry you got it. I'm just gonna finish real quick. I I don't have a whole lot more to say on him other than the fact that he's just been super inconsistent playing off blocks and like he doesn't he gets to the right spot but he's just a very poor tackler when he gets to finish. The interesting thing to me about the Colorado game was that, and to some extent Cal, was that uh, due to DJ Johnson's injury, they were playing, they had previously really only brought him in as a third down pass rush guy. Um, I think because they were probably not satisfied with his ability and run contain. But I flagged a couple of different plays over the last two weeks in which they were sort of forced to play him um, on standard downs, and he was just doing just fine, you know, in run contain. I, I, th- I'm sort of maybe that concern is resolved like what do you think uh i don't i don't know the i the cal offensive line and the colorado offensive line are so bad that it's i don't know how trustworthy that sample is relative to like the competition that we're going to need him to perform against down the stretch because i think oregon state and uh utah are far more capable offensive lines in washington as well um and then whoever we play whether it's usc or utah is going to be more capable but I, I think that the area that I want to see him get more run is as a pass rusher because I do think he is by far the most reliable 
pressure creator in like isolation one-on-ones against tackles uh i yeah i i mean i i guess i think what's been interesting is that other than switching to a dime package um i've been surprised that oregon hasn't you know hasn't trotted out like a very clear like this is our we're going to get to the quarterback on third and long um pass rush package like that's sort of the instead so they've sort of been you know playing with their their standard front and then they sort of do sims and fun stuff which like i enjoy seeing as a as a film reviewer because they're interesting but i'm sort of like i've been surprised that they don't seem to have like specialists for that role when i think they have some specialists on the roster like swinson and bossa uh what do you what do you think is going on there um i think so there's there's two parts to that, and again, these are anecdotal opinions more than anything else, but I think that the first piece is, is that Oregon's played a lot of really mobile quarterbacks this year, not mm. necessarily in the most recent games, because I would not categorize uh, JT Shroud or Jack Plummer as, like, scary runners or mobile guys. Definitely not. Uh, but, like, when you think back, I don't really and, think that Penix is either. By the way, like no, I he's think, not. I think that sometimes people have categorized the, him for reasons that probably don't bear getting into as that, yeah. but he's really not. Um, he just isn't. Yeah, and this, yeah, for for the inverse reason that people assume that Stetson Bennett can't move. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's been like in certain games, I think the game plan is dictated, and maybe the opponent. Uh, the, the the quarterback that they have is dictated that like okay we'd probably rather just keep this guy in the pocket and maybe not get as much sacks or pressure but just keep him in a spot where we know where he's at and he can't go anywhere uh, but I also think that maybe they're saving it a little bit for maybe a certain quarterback from Seattle who is not particularly mobile whose feet get really sloppy when pressure is in his face that uh, maybe fun uh yeah, the 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 quarterback that's still on the schedule that I worry about most is is Cam Rising simply because 100%. he's so infuriating with that, you know. Um, boy, and I really like to see somebody put him on his back. Um, and I, I would sure like to see Braden Swinson be the guy to do it. Yeah, me too. I mean, we really we need Braden Swinson to take that next step. And frankly, like to me, Edge is a spot where the transfer portal is like they need to be aggressive about mm-hmm. gaining edge guys off the transfer portal because all i've seen now with them playing ma on the edge is that they don't really trust any of the young guys that have been brought in over the last couple of years outside of swinson to be contributors off, off the edge yet i do generally like the way that they've been playing contain um you know that's something that i have to say that i um am frustrated by when i watch a, a lot of other pac-12 teams um and in fact, like put out tweets about it where I'm like yelling at players for, uh, you know, running themselves out of the play or, or jumping inside too much or not executing the scrape exchange properly. Um, and, you know, I don't really think that Oregon has that problem. Um, you know, they're maintaining proper leverage, uh, you know, and ability to get to a back who's trying to bounce outside um, or generate holding flags when they try to disengage. Um and the tackle won't let them. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I I think it's a well coached you know unit. Uh, I, I I got no complaints with their technique. No, I don't either. I think that's a good transition though, because I think that our the way that we we are a much better team at block destruction now on the defensive line than we were a year ago. Like uh, we definitely. are, we like it, it's beautiful. Like there there was a couple times against both Colorado and Cal where it's like the ball gets snapped and in unison you see three sets of pads of, of offensive linemen just get shocked up and backwards as they just get completely reset. And our guys have like really good eyes, good hands, good feet. And like, they're just, they're ready to disengage and go in whatever direction they need to go in. 
Uh, and that is really fun to watch. Like we are physically dominating teams at the point right now. Uh, and I think that I think Oregon's interior, I mean, this isn't really, this isn't news to you, but it's the best interior group in the conference. Oh, without a doubt. And in fact, it's quite frustrating to me to watch a lot of other Pac-12 teams. Well, for two different reasons. Um, first is I see a lot of teams um, who are not as big or as talented and are trying to make up for that by with, you know, sort of uh, aggression and guessing and slanting. And mm-hmm. they wind up running themselves out of place. I, I wind up seeing actually pretty often. Um uh, not against, you know, the, not the opponent that Oregon is about to play. Um, that one, it's, you know, a bunch of big guys, you know, in the middle who couldn't possibly, you know, outrun anything, but like, uh, you know, most of the other defenses that I watch, you know, have that problem and Oregon doesn't. Um, and that's very nice. And the other thing is simply the depth. Um, the, the, you know, Oregon's not just got a bunch of big guys. It's got a bunch of playable big guys, um, and who move well and who are big with length and not just big with their bellies and, um, and, and, you know, and they can play true nose, um, and they can play multiple guys at true nose to the point where they can have two different guys who are injured, you know, Taimani and Amavai, um, and, and they keep on ticking. They don't switch to a two down front, like a lot of, um, like a lot of other Pac-12 teams might. Um, and, 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 you know, so one of the things that I'm able to track is fairly simple database query is that I can look at their, your, your defensive success rate, uh, over the, you know, by quarter. Um, and generally you exclude the fourth quarter because it's the fourth quarter is weird, but just like a, for, for every team, there's a little bit of a fall off. You know, they usually pay their best in the first quarter and then a little less in the second quarter and a little less in the third. Um, yeah, that's normal. Um, but like, but particular in rush defense, you know, it tends to just absolutely collapse for a bunch of teams in the Pac-12 because even teams that I sort of like their interior defensive line like Cal and even Colorado I actually think by, by far Colorado's best unit is their defensive line I really like those guys except that there's only four of them and you know they just they, they, you know they can only play four guys and, and then they get tired and, and then they're you know the third down effectiveness just absolutely collapsed Colorado did and uh, and Cal did and UCLA did and those are the teams we're supposed to be talking about in a quarter three review and like it's not true for Oregon Oregon actually um, they don't get stronger through the third quarter but they per- they overperform the average, like the average rate of decay. That's what I was alluding to. Um, it is, you know, it winds, it is about 3% per quarter and only Oregon's only decaying at about a point and a half per quarter, um, in, in their rush defense, uh, which is great. And it's because they're able to rotate dudes. Um, and, and nobody else in the conference, not even close is able to rotate dudes. Even, you know, teams that have like defensive linemen that I really like, you know, USC, for example, like has a, uh, uh, his name is escaping to, to blow to, um, uh, you know, even guys who would be like, Ooh, you know, you could play for Oregon. I would like you to be on this team. You know, like there are a bunch of teams like that or guys like that on different teams in the pac 12, but nobody has the depth, you know, that Oregon does. They can rotate and they can avoid this fatigue issues. And like, boy, that's nice. You know, you know, just, it's the complement to the offensive line advantage that Oregon has, you know, p- play in the trenches. I guess I'm not saying anything particularly unique here, but like Oregon fans ought to know it that like they enjoy a substantial structural advantage over every team in the conference because they run, you know, deep and big at, uh, at you know, in the trenches. And that's where the game is won. And the crazy thing is, is that that talent profile is getting upgraded by like through recruiting right now. Like there's good players in there um, for Oregon, but I think that like from an, NFL standpoint, there's not a ton of like top end NFL guys in that group, uh, but there's some guys coming in here that are just going to be ridiculous. Um, so that's exciting for the future. I know you're not a big recruiting guy, but uh, nonetheless, like I need to talk about Keon Ware Hudson because his game against Colorado was awesome. Oh yeah, it was um, excellent. I I, ha- I have two negative, you know, frowny face plays next to him um, for this entire quarter. Uh, you know, the last three games. 
yeah, he's been like he's really stepped up, and like we've needed him to step up, right? Like Talkie's been out, um, rumors from uh, that he's going to be coming back here soon, so that would be good to get him back. But like in his absence, like I would, I'd be really interested to hear your grades on Keanu uh, Williams because I actually thought Keanu Williams has been pretty damn good as well. Keanu's wearing ninety nine, right? Yep. I have a one hundred percent grade for Keanu Williams for the last three games. Good. So it matches up pretty much. I didn't want to be too wrong here so i'm glad that that confirms but yeah i thought he's been really good and like he's long and he's big and he plays with good leverage and he plays discipline he's um and i actually think that he of of our interior guys maybe not this year but in years to come seems to be a guy that would project to have some actual pass rush ability from the inside just due to his length and general first first step quickness um but like jordan riley is flat out mauling guys oh yeah when whenever he plays he's mauling guys brandon dorless um, has been, I think it's been really helpful to him to have all these transfers brought in, uh, because he and and some guys like Keanu Williams and Keanu Ware Hudson either getting healthy or stepping up and getting older and growing into bigger roles, because he's not being forced to play a lot of standard rundown interior snaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, I think he's been more effective for it. Would you agree with that? Well, his what's remarkable about Dorless is you know his range. You know, I, I I see that guy play everywhere from you know a two eye to a nine technique. Um, yeah, and, and boy, you don't see that you know very often in this league. No, I I think he's still best inside as a, at least in rushdowns. He doesn't do a lot for me as an edge rusher, uh, but he does do a lot for me when he's going against guards, um, and especially when when they get pressures dialed up that allow him to be isolated one on one. I think he's probably I don't know if you have a number for this, but he, I think he, based on my film film review and my speculation based on such, I would assume he's probably our highest uh, pressure rate player on the defense. Um, on the inside, yes. Yep. Okay. Who would be? Who's the highest overall? Uh, Jeffrey Bossa. Well, that that clears. That makes sense. Okay. But yeah, so that's good. I, I don't know. The defensive line is fantastic. I think Coach Tuyoti's done a good job. They they seem well coached. Um, the techniques that they play, um, all the different fronts that we run. I just there's a, there's a ton of versatility there, and there's just there's so many playable guys in non garbage time. Like imagine like this, this is without Popo and Taimani, but you've got Mae, um, you've got Riley, Casey Rogers, Ware Hudson, um, Dorless, and Keanu Williams. That's that's six guys without two available. That's unheard of in this conference. Uh, yeah, and and and, and you know, I, I don't think the Taimani's out for the season, as far as I'm aware. No, I think he's supposed to be back this week. Yeah, <laughs> and well, like the the thing is, is that like Taimani goes out, Keanu Williams comes in, and he just proves that like like I don't think that Keanu Williams is going to stop playing when Taimani comes back. Uh, no, I wouldn't expect so. It'd be nice for them to, you know, be able to continue all the rotation. And I mean, the other thing that's really nice too, is that like, you know, I wrote a couple of articles about the mint front and, you know, how nice it is to be able to play a consistent three down front, which is not something that Oregon or a whole lot of Pac-12 teams that are ostensibly three down fronts have actually been able to do because of the nose tackle, which is why when you ask me like, what's the most important or, you know, best position, I'm just going to say nose tackle. Cause like without him, your defensive structure, like, you know, changes yeah. radically. Um, but like, 
the cool thing is, is this is not a particularly static defensive front. They stem a lot. They alter the configuration of the front. So even though they're playing in three down, like that dude might slide over and, you know, he's not playing a nose anymore. And a guy who was, you know, a four eye is more like a one now. Um, and like, but he's big enough to do that. He's credible, you know, to take, you know, to, to, to take on the center, you know, and close down both, a, both a gaps. Like that's, the size advantage which is um it's simply not replicated in any other team in this league yeah and just to kind of bookend this conversation and kind of bring a whole like this is where i think dj johnson when he when he's healthy and available obviously um has produced a lot of value for oregon because they can stem with him on the field specifically they can stem in and out of base him and doorless because they have such great positional flexibility doorless plays down more interior like he'll play two i three um, but like they can play Johnson and anything down to a four eye, which gives them a lot of flexibility if they want to bump out Doros on the other side and switch fronts. Um, and, and Johnson is so strong at the point of attack as a run defender, uh, that like, there's not, it's not like it would be typical when you stem down an outside linebacker. The other thing that's cool about this front, um, or this line, uh, is, you know, speaking of formational variety is that like you could see guys dropping in coverage that you would not expect to see dropping in coverage. You know, like at one point during this game against Colorado, they were using Keanu Williams as the quarterback spy. Um, And, and on a play when the quarterback attempted to scramble and it's not like he was waddling over to him, Keanu Williams was effectively closing that down and forced him to try, you know, to, to throw the ball. Um, and, and the pass went incomplete and it was for Keanu Williams, you know, it was a sim, right? Like they, I believe they were, they were rushing a DB, um, and he's the one who drops back. So, you know, they're still rushing for, but he's, you know, eyeing the QB and then he starts to take off and he, he moves laterally and, and forces the quarterback to release the ball and it's an incomplete pass instead of like a three-yard gain uh or more on you know on a scram not that jt trout is much of a scrambler but i mean he does have a pair of legs um you know if there were no one there he would have gotten like three four five yards maybe continue the drive but instead it, it dies because keanu williams is playing sky spy like can you think of another team in the league <laughs> no i mean they can do the, such a thing no the closest thing that i saw to that was uh georgia against tennessee was doing some stuff like that dropping out into your defensive lineman um into into like kind of spy situations but i think that's kind of unique to that tree of of uh defense of defense yeah but no i agree i mean i overall i've been very pleased with the defense i think that uh, maybe some of the like some of the statistic statistical models or advanced stats models um are a little bit lower on the defense than I think in practicality it actually performs for some of the reasons that you've mentioned. Like when you when like I think Jeff it was Jeff Schwartz that put out a tweet a couple of weeks ago and it was like a super simple breakdown, but it's just like basically like the the amount of points that are being scored once backups and, and enter the game, the amount of yardage that has been put up on Oregon in fourth quarters of games that have been completely un like not contests anymore at that point. It, it all of all of Oregon's raw statistics defensively are substantially better when you account for that. Um, and, and like, yeah, it's a problem that your young guys aren't performing at a super high level, but they're not performing at a super high level because they're super young. Right. And well, I know you yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, look, you know, I just did that whole project on Georgia, you know, where I watched their 2020 and 2021 film. And like, look, the reason why Georgia won a national championship and it's probably the odds on favor to win it again is that like their developmental time has now been, you know, 
it's been several years of blowout wins in which they play their developmental squad for like 30 minutes a game. And it's not one year of that being the case for, you know, a few games, which is what it's been for Oregon. Um, and like, you know what, that is, that really is the difference between a t team that makes the playoffs and a team that makes it through the playoffs. Um, and, and I'm sorry to, you know, burst anybody's bubble. Who's thinking like, maybe, 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 uh, for Oregon, you know, it's probably not the case because that is true. The developmental guys are giving up multiple touchdowns and it means that if Oregon, you know, runs into injury problems, which like knock on wood, but it happens. It's a physical game. Um, you know, you probably can't rely on those guys in order to shut games down, you know, and it's why teams have sort of been able to creep back in and make the, you know, the statistical profile look bad. It doesn't really matter, you know, you know, for, for most of the, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of teams that Oregon plays because they're not playing playoff caliber teams on Pac-12. I can tell you that much. Um, but like it would, um, going forward, you know, at the next, you know, level, which means that like, it's probably not going to happen this year. It's probably not going to happen next year. It's probably, you know, at least three years down the road, because that's what you have to stack. You don't just have to stack top five recruiting classes. All that you, that is a necessary, but not sufficient condition. You also need to be stacking developmental time year after year after year that those, you know, you have to be bringing in blue chips and they need to be playing well in developmental time. Um, and you know, that, that second component isn't, isn't there yet but if you exclude garbage time which god knows you ought to be doing anybody who's not doing is trying to sell you something like oregon's defense performs very well um you know they they are performing at above a 60 percent rate against both the uh, against the run um and they are performing at a about a 56 percent uh, rate uh, against the pass if you include the georgia game this is the thing that you know i said on the offense that the georgia game doesn't really affect things any anymore it still does on the defense like that that performance against georgia was so abysmal that even with nine games worth of data they it is still creating about a five percentage point dip in efficiency if you include georgia in the entire sample which five percentage points in efficiency is a huge it's it's a standard deviation it's big you know so basically you know if you um include the Georgia data, then, you know, Oregon is performing at about 56% against the pass, which is above average, but not elite number. Um, and about 61% against the run, which is an elite number. However, if you exclude the Georgia data, both of those go up by 5%. It goes up to 61 against the pass championship caliber and 65%, which is super excellent, uh, against the run. Um, you know, and, and no matter what their performances in terms of limiting, you know, yards per play is excellent. It's about seven, uh, against the pass and about four against the run, which are, you know, fantastic numbers They're you know, uh, it's only about 10% of explosive passing plays. It's only about 6% explosive rushing plays. Like, you know, explosive play defense has been excellent, you know, for Oregon. It's just like, as you say, it's the third down conversion phenomenon, you know, where they're giving up, you know, like, you know, seven yards on third and six, you know, but it's not really a bit, you know, it's not like explosive plays that go for touchdowns you know i know the colorado hit one but you know, it's one play uh yeah. well, that, you know that's like the first like busted coverage i can remember yeah. in multiple weeks but you know point being is that like the you know in addition to excluding garbage time if you want to project how oregon will perform in their next three games or four games assuming you know god willing that that, that they make the conference championship game and maybe even against a, a you know a high quality bowl opponent um that uh if you want to use the numbers that oregon generates in order to pr predict future performance then you not only need to exclude garbage time for reasons that i hope i don't need to explain to anybody who's bright enough to listen to this podcast but you should also be excluding the georgia data because the conditions that produced the the horrible performance against georgia simply will not obtain for any of oregon's future opponents except 
for maybe Georgia again. And even then, probably not them because, you know, it's going to be week 15, not week one. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure I don't need to belabor that point either. So like this defense is a lot better than critics are giving it credit for. Like, um, and even, you know, like F plus, for example, I, you know, with the current data incorporating, which again is going to include the Georgia data and probably more garbage time than it ought to still has Oregon's defense ranked number 51, which is you can win a championship with 51. If you have the number two ranked offense. Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to put you in kind of a, like, well, more of a subjective place than you typically like to live. Um, but, through nine games now we're through three quarters of the season how would you how two two parts here how would you say the development of this team matches your expectations coming into the season uh just start with that start there um offense has exceeded my wildest expectations um uh largely because i didn't think that the which i think i would trace you know the reason i was wrong about that i would trace to being surprised by the tight end situation i i I, I tried to talk about that earlier in the podcast um the defense has been frankly about my level of expectation, although for different reasons, I thought the secondary was going to stink. They've been better than I thought. I thought the inside linebackers were going to be absolute murderers and there's been some problems there. Um, yeah, th- that's my answer to your question. Yeah, no, I, I think I would agree on all fronts there. And then uh, lastly, so based on, and I don't want you to give away uh, some of the work that you've done, so I'm not going to ask you specifically against Washington or anything, but uh, based on what we've seen this year and kind of what you're charting, I know you've watched basically every team in the Pac-12 at least a couple times, given how many games we've played. Um, I'm a little behind on Oregon State, but I can answer your question about anybody else. Perfect. Well, I'm just going to so, ask and you. Arizona State, not like that's going to matter, yeah. but. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I was just going to ask you, like, about this last three-game stretch, um, given given kind of where we're at, I think that at this point in the season, nine games, and you have a pretty good idea who you are. Like, there's nothing that's really going to surprise us about Oregon going forward, uh, unless someone just emerges and gets ten sacks in the next three weeks. That would be kind of a nice surprise. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. But do you like? How do you feel about the potential of becoming the first team to to go undefeated in a Pac-12 nine-game schedule? Do you, think um, it, do you think it's possible? Do you think it's within reach, or do you think Oregon's going to drop one? I think it is very plausible. Uh, the th- the thing that I would note again, I'm a, I'm a little behind on my Oregon, or I haven't compi- co- compiled the data for Oregon State. And by the time that Oregon plays them, they will have played two more games, which is a substantial part of the data. So I don't really want to speculate too much about it. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Washington, they've got no more data to to add, and Utah, you know, is not facing a super. T- I forget who who is Utah playing. The, uh, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, they play. Or I have it right here. They play Stanford. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so that, that data is not going to really move the needle much. In fact, I might wind up excluding a whole lot of it because it winds up being garbage time. Um, so I feel a little more comfortable talking about um, uh, 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 about Washington and, and Utah than I am talking about Oregon State because they still have to play Cal and Arizona State who have like some interesting aspects uh, to to their teams. I wouldn't say that the best teams in the Pac-12 uh, by any stretch, but they're not like total joke teams the way that Stanford is. So um, the 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 the. 
what I will note about Washington and Utah, and you will have to read my articles to get more detail about this, is that both of their run defenses just absolutely stink this year. Like I, it's and it's been a real surprise, you know, given that I sort of like their interior defensive lines for both of those teams, you know, quite a bit, but just not able to rotate them as much, and they're not as athletic as they need to be, and so their, you know, their uh, rush defense efficiency rates are comparable to well, basically every team that Oregon has played, um, which is you know about forty three percent or so, which you know given that Oregon is running at seventy four percent. Oh my God! You yeah, know, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to lose when you have a run game that can do whatever it wants every week. To um, a rush defense that can't, you know, they can't stop efficiency running. You know, like that's, you know, one of the reasons why I have always been, you know, the, the, apparently the only person on the internet who's like, you know, I, I love a good run game uh, is because it is so versatile, and you know, because it allows you to control the game and, and it sets up everything else that you want to do, and, and because the first, like, ask any coach, any coach. You know, what is the first thing that you need to do? It is to run the ball and to stop the run. And what are, you know, you know what Oregon's two best quadrants of football are? Running the ball and stopping the run. And good luck. Yeah. Good luck, opponents. Yep, I I 100% agree with you. And I just think that, like, Utah's offense, without Kincaid and Keithy, has been, like, substantially defanged. Oh, wait, hold Uh, on. Are you saying that Andy Ludwig, without really great tight ends who are pass catchers, (laughs) that he can put three on the field at once and his total failure to recruit any wide receivers to the point where the only other dude who's catching passes is literally a walk-on wide receiver? has been a problem for them. I guess who could have possibly predicted that and written an article in the off season and got lit up by Utah fans as being a jealous, bitter, you know, Oregon fan. Like who's laughing now? Well, I the, the funnier part about that is like, Oh, Hey, you guys don't have any edge rushers. Um, except for filling your, uh, it's, your yeah, it's it, unfortunate. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Un- unfortunate for the kid, in the injury. I'm not definitely not talking about it in that vein. I'm just saying that like, they have really struggled to rush the passer this year. Oh yeah. No, they can't get any, they can't generate any pressure without blitzing. In fact, it was very obvious watching the USC film that, you know, like Caleb Williams had, had all day to throw and like, I'm not a huge fan of USC's offensive line, but I mean, U- Utah made them look like world beaters to the point where like, to the point where like Utah was just, they, in the second half, they just started, you know, exclusively blitzing. And I mean like really blitzing, like they were bringing like six or seven guys on almost every play. Um, because, like that was a better trade-off for them especially given that the structure of their zone defense does not have guys switch side of the field and like they, they just like structurally their philosophy is that uh, uh well of course you know i don't have to worry about drag routes that run all the way across the field because like no way that anybody can can resist the mighty utah defensive line you know to, to, to have five second pockets and then you know caleb williams is like i got my stopwatch out man like <laughs> that dude's getting five second pockets against you know utah's non-pass rush and like i mean for we just spent some time, you know, ragging on uh, on Oregon's, you know, not converting, you know, stuff into sacks. At the very least, they're compressing the pocket. At the very least, they're requiring the quarterback to like, you know, get the ball out of his hand. And like Utah's not doing that. No, and not like, at all. Boy, is that a real change from their 2019, you know, defense? That's the thing sort of remarkable. Like I, I know those games against Utah last year didn't go very well, and, and there's some other off the field reasons that I think contribute to that. But like Utah's defense has been on a slide. This, you know, the the 2019 was their best defense. You know, and, and 2020 was worse. You can blame COVID for that. But, you know, and all the you know they just lost everybody off of the 2019 team. That was probably you know going to happen. But the 2021 did not like bounce back to 2020. Or excuse me, 2019 levels. And the 2020 defense has been worse than even the 2021 one has been. You know, I'm sort of seeing a, a, a Cal plus three years situation where they peaked in 2018 and been sliding ever since um, due to some, you know, recruiting problems and sort of like they, they sort of captured lightning in a bottle in terms of getting a bunch of low talent players to play way better, you know, and it turned out they were NFL players in disguise. Like, 
I don't think that Utah has a bunch of NFL players in disguise on their defense right yeah, now. Yeah, kind of. It, basically, it's showing exactly what happened at Washington too. Like you, can, you cannot oh, sure. sustain a disproportionate level of out evaluating recruiting rankings, right? Like you might hit on a class or two in a row, which is what Washington did. Um, and what Utah did as well, but eventually it catches up to you. You miss on a handful of evaluations and you wind up with these big holes in your roster. Um, and that's kind of where Utah, well, not kind of, that's exactly where Utah is right now. It's where the Washington defense is as well. Like they've done a really good job over the years and uh, it's kind of all caught up, up, up caught up with them at once. Uh, last thing I want to leave you with here is actually a random Reddit post that came across my screen today that I thought you would get a good chuckle out of. Um, this is on uh, Reddit CFB. Uh, this is in regards to uh, Mario. It says, uh, Mario and his friends will pursue a woolly mammoth until it gets tired and falls, whereupon he will use a comically large club to finish it off. If you give him a snowmobile and a rifle, he will still use them as clubs. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. So I wanted to share uh, that with you. It's it's a, certainly an amusing image. The thing that uh, struck me about the you know I'm I'm getting ahead of myself somewhat, but just to finish the thought about you know watching the Utah versus USC game is I really thought it was an indictment of Lincoln Riley's game planning, um, which I thought that I detected when I was doing the Alamo Bowl prep last year as well. Like he you know, he comes out with a bunch of like quasi gadget plays, and then they just totally disappear in the second half, and he's running like. For, for by Lincoln Riley standards, you know, a guy who I really admire, um, and, and one of my, you know, film reviewer friends, Burke 18, um, is, you know, I know admires him as well and released a couple different videos about Lincoln Riley's offenses, particularly the power RPO stuff is really fascinating. Like it all just kind of disappears in the second half and then Utah blitzes them to hell. And that's why they're not scoring as much as they need to be in order to stay ahead in that game. Um, and like, boy, oh boy, I sure would like the stars to align to get a shot at, um, USC in the title game. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I want a shot against them. I, the, the guys really that matchup. Yeah. Like, get... I mean, oh, you, you know, you know, the conference wants that matchup. They won't say it. They can't say it, but they are absolutely praying for the USC Oregon matchup. And you know, all the networks want it and you know, all the national media wants it. Everybody wants it. Well, well, you'll know that they want it when Mike Mothershed is the head official of the USC UCLA <laughs> game and the calls just start rolling in for the Trojans. Um, yeah. It's either going to be him or goggles, the new goggles ref goggles 2.0. Goggles 2.0, like for as incompetent as that crew is, is still better than the original. The original was the worst officiating crew of in the history of football. Um, just trust me; don't look any research into it. But yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I I will say the I don't know which crew it is, and I need to find out so I can give them credit. But there is one crew in the Pac-12 that is actually a really good crew. They worked the UCLA Oregon game, and I just hope we get them for Utah. They should be in the Pac-12. Like, just give them all the important games from here on out. Mm. Perfect. Well, I think that's as good of a spot to finish off as we're ever going to find. Oh, it's complaining the, about uh, Pac-12 refs. Yeah, that is traditional. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, 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 I think that Dan Rubin scene, though, uh, Oregon alum on the solid verbal had a really good point about the Lincoln Riley offense and like his complete like 
lack of stick to itness with the run game, despite the fact that it's been the best part of their offense all year. I mean, he's currently almost lost to Arizona because he took him almost three full quarters to, to, to remember that Arizona has the worst rush defense in the country. And, you know, and he had just, I know that he watched the film of Oregon destroying them. Like he, Oregon gave him the game plan to beat that team and he didn't use it. I don't get that dude, man. I really don't. Like, I think he's really in love with his own creativity. And he sort of yep. reminds me of Chip oh. Kelly, you know, by, by a different, like a different way of getting opposite, there. Yeah. The opposite, the opposite end. We're going to, yeah, that's, that's what Dan Rubenstein said. He said, he's like, it's, it's more about the, it's more about the art than the product, the finished product. Mm. You have like, it's, it's more about getting to the score you design. It's like the inverse of Iowa, getting to the, to the score. The score doesn't matter. It's getting, getting the outcome the, the right way. And to Lincoln Riley, the right way is through Caleb Williams' arm. Um, and Iowa thinks that the only way that you can win is by scoring seven points and the opponent scoring three. So yeah. on that, and, we, and it's not like we don't have some some recent experience ourselves with a coach that that seemed pretty pretty stubborn to to want to win a very specific way. Man, well, I can't really figure. Like, I don't do film study on the ACC. You know, it simply <laughs> hasn't like I've been called upon. Why to would you? Before. Well, yeah, um, I can't figure out what's going wrong at Miami. Like, I understand what the sort of the, what the inputs are. I understand that you know that 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 it's probably you know a team that's not as talented as it's uh, you know on paper ought to be, and that the, you know probably the culture you know had a lot of problems. And the Mario Cristobal style is to you know like he's gonna you know make you hit rock bottom you know before he starts building you back up, which like yeah okay it's probably a necessary thing. And I also sort of understand there's a lot of like game management issues with Mario Cristobal. I think we're all you know familiar with those. I think that you know Oregon. Fans kind of tend to overstate such things because like fans tend to focus on you know play in the margins and i and when really you know games are decided on fundamental strength stuff but like those two things even you know at full value still don't add up to this performance at miami it's well, very strange like there's a third thing going on i don't know what it is but like they should not be getting run out of the stadium that often um i it's really weird it's it's not just that they're bad because like being bad when you're one with a brand new staff and like trying to fix a culture and all that stuff, I like that's forgivable, but it's like, you know, who else is really, really bad last year, or, like a lot worse than Miami and who doesn't have a bunch of four and five star talent Duke and Mike Elko yeah. has them running, like winning games and running Miami out of the stadium on the road. Like they didn't win a single ACC game last year. Duke didn't. And Middle Tennessee State is not like a particularly good Sunbelt team. Um, and or hell, like, you don't have to go, you know, look at what Jed Vish is doing at Arizona. You know, like, you know, that that guy's basically, you know, he had, you know, they, they he had, immediately hits the ground running for recruiting. He's he's got, you know, guys playing hard for him. You know, he's he's in tough with, you know, teams. And like you, you got to imagine that the culture under Kevin Sumlin was not, you know, a winning culture. You know, like that it doesn't take that long, man. No, no. And they, like here's the deal. Your staff and having, you know, maybe a bad culture does it doesn't make you take timeouts in the first half on fourth and two from the 36 yard line and then decide to punt after the timeout. Like, I mean, yeah, Doug, like, I, but that's sort of what I, I, you know, that's marginal stuff. Like, it, it, you know, that that's, you know, that's how you lose games when they're close that would otherwise be winnable games, which I think is a fair yeah. indictment of Mario Christopher. But, but that is not it, an explanation for 48 to three. No, 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 no. But it's, it's indicative of, of a lack of progression. This in certain is, aspects of coaching. Yeah, so this is what I would say. Like the, the most inexcusable part, and I think this is probably more Hitler where you're getting, is 
They haven't scored a touchdown in 26 drives. Like, you, like, you could lock into one. Yeah, like, like Tyler Van Dyke, like, that's including off of turnovers. Like, Tyler Van Dyke was lighting the world on fire against the same exact schedule the back half of last year, and they can't throw the ball at all. All of a sudden, they can't run the ball. Like, they, they've just, like, they, like, they, I, I don't know, like, Florida State. You know, you could run Oregon ran the ball under Mario Cristobal. FIU ran the ball under Mario Cristobal. Why can't Miami? You know, like what they're not playing. And it's the thing is like they're not it's not that they're doing like struggling against Clemson's defensive front and like good defensive fronts. It's like it's Duke. It's Virginia. It's like it's these teams that we objectively know are bad. Um, like in the ACC is a complete joke this year. Like the coastal division oh, yeah, the division they're in is by far the worst division in college like power five football. Um, and so, is yeah, Miami in the coastal, I can never remember which teams yeah. are in the coastal. Yeah, so you have the Virginia schools, uh, Duke, UNC, Miami, and Georgia Tech are in the coastal. So basically all the teams that make you sad. Yeah, all the teams that make you sad. And by the way, Georgia Tech is a two and a half point favorite at home against Miami. <laughs> you know, the thing, the reason why I, I said, I, I don't know because I don't really do film studies. I sort of expect that it's the offensive line. Like it would almost have to be, um, like maybe their offensive line is just like Florida state terrible, which like I'll, I'll loop that into something where I did, you know, cause I did that whole project on Kenny Dillingham. In fact, I wrote two articles on Kenny Dillingham. And like, that was the thing that really jumped out to me was that like, to the extent that I was having success or to the extent that he was doing things differently at Florida state than he was doing things at Memphis. The difference was because Florida state's offensive line was just God awful, you know? And like, it takes a long time to fix an offensive line you have to do it organically. Anybody who thinks like, Oh, we'll just dip into the, the transfer portal to get to, to get our offensive line. Like, forget it, dude. It's not going to happen. It's why, you know, my, 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 I puckered a bit when Oregon hired Adrian Clem. Cause I was just like, if this guy can't keep the Oregon offensive line rolling, then, you know, it, as long as it takes you to dig an offensive line hole, it takes you five times longer to dig out of it. Um, and, and so I, I sort of suspect that probably, you know, the, the, the most logical explanation sight unseen or sight basically unseen, uh, for Miami is that maybe their offensive line is just like trash and maybe Alex Mirabal, as much as I like Alex Mirabal, I really do think he's, you know, an excellent offensive line coach, you know, it's probably a guy who's good at like taking guys who are already good and making them real good, you know, especially what I was watching in 2021 and 2020 to some extent too, um, or to a large extent in 20, which was like this, like this constant rotation at the offensive line, which I never thought could work. Like, you know, the orthodoxy with offensive lines, you pick your five guys and you play them until, you know, an injury situation forces you not to. And he was just like, nah, really, I can, you know, rotate guys around, you know, quite a bit. And it was quite effective. And I was re really, you know, admired Alex Mirabal, but like there, it's entirely possible. Their line is just trash and he is trying to, you know, he's cracking a whip and the tiger is eating him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they, they have some injuries in the offensive line, but they also took a pretty, like, I mean, they took a couple guys that like are, would be playing for us. Well, not playing for us, but that were going to be players for us at some point, like mm. Dennis and Sagapolu, who were like decent players. Um, like I, I don't think that their offensive line is so horrible that they're just completely incapable of like, again, it, it's one thing to struggle offensively. It's another thing to not score a touchdown since October 22nd. And like, here's the deal. They play Georgia tech this weekend. If they don't score a touchdown against Georgia tech, they probably aren't scoring one for the rest of the season. Because then they play Clemson, and then they play Pittsburgh. And mm. both of those teams are pretty damn good on the defensive side of the ball um, when their offense isn't, and special teams aren't scoring touchdowns against them. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's going to be, uh, 
it's gonna be interesting to see. I, I, obviously, he's gonna get players in. They'll they'll get better over the course of, of years. But I I think that this I I think he might have missed on some hires on that staff. I think the offensive coordinator might be a kind of a problem. Yeah, it's it's difficult to evaluate Gaddis because like he's he's one of those he's one of those coordinators he's one of those coordinators where I'm not sure I can trust the Michigan fan base in evaluating him. You know, in the sense of like if this guy stunk as bad as he did, like how'd you make the playoffs? You know, you, you, you jabronis. You know, like you, you, guy can't possibly be sabotaging you that much. And then I, you know, turn on Miami games on Saturday. And I'm like, oh man, maybe he is sabotaging that much. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I would agree with you. Like, there's some rumors out there, and I don't know how substantial they are, but like that 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 Harbaugh basically reassumed offensive play calling duties at some point. Hmm. And that's part of why Gaddis left, um, which I guess would make sense from a logical. standpoint. I mean, that would be internally consistent. Certainly, I don't, you know, yeah. I can't verify that with any external data, but it it hangs yeah. together. I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't. I don't follow Michigan really all that closely. But it was pretty clear, like that they went back towards more of what Harbaugh was doing at Stanford last year, and away from what Michigan was trying to do in 2020. And so there might be there might be something to that. Maybe Josh Gaddis has managed to fail his way up a little bit into more um, important roles, and it's kind of caught up with him all at once. But um, I don't know. It's it is kind of fun to see that fan base squirm a little bit, though. So. The other team that I've been keeping an eye on, um, you know, uh, around the country, you know, Miami for, for, you know, hey, let's evaluate Mario Cristobal reasons. That's kind of fun. Um, the other one that I've been evaluating has been Texas Tech because Oregon plays them next year. And uh, and by extension, I've been watching some more Big 12 film, which is like, what what an interesting conference that is this year. Um, I don't really think the TCU's for real. Um I, I I really am sort of very surprised that they haven't lost a game yet, and I'd be very surprised if they finish the season undefeated. Have you watched them at all? What do you think about that team? I've watched them. Um, I watched a ton of Western Kentucky last year. Uh, one because I was always a big fan of David Davis, not in the way that I thought that like David Davis should have been playing for us in a more substantial role. But yeah, it was really fun when I was watching the Carlos Lachlan tape, and and like I, you know, I was like, hey, I recognize that guy. Yeah, and it's like for I like I was a fan of him because of like the team player he was and how he like was totally willing to just move back and forth from offense to defense whenever needed and just like give good effort. Like he obviously was never going to be like a super impact player at Oregon, um, but like yeah, I just respected the hell out of that. And I was like, oh, he's got good athleticism. He'll probably make some plays at that level. Um, and their offense was just super fun to watch with Bailey Zappi, um, and that's who uh, the coordinator is. Obviously, who's at Texas Tech now, and mm-hmm. Tim DeRuiter's at Tech, so we know everything about that yeah. defensive structure. Um, I, yeah, the, like they're they're fun offensively. They've had like their quarterback gets hurt every week. Um, yeah. one of the three, and they're all kind of the same guy. I don't know. Like it, Oregon is obviously going to be turning over a lot of roster this off season. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what we look like kind of once that gets settled a little bit. Um, and we're going to have obviously questions at quarterback, assuming Bo goes pro, which is a pretty safe assumption at this point given his uh, comments preseason. Um, but I like. They're dangerous in the sense that, like, if you are bad in the secondary or are, are not ready for them, they will hang fifty on you, and they'll have no like no qualms about doing it. And they could do it with any of the five quarterbacks that they have on scholarship. Um, but defensively, they struggle from all the same problems that Tim DeRuiter defenses typically struggle from. Well, and with Big Twelve defensive talent. Yeah, exactly. At, at a school that's still like pretty early on in the rebuilding stage, but I will say like. Uh, again, I know you don't follow recruiting super close, but like the job that they've that staff has done on the recruiting trail, um, like they are recruiting better than anyone's recruited at Tech, like ever. 
Well, I mean, I will be assembling, you know, a roster database for them as I do for all of Oregon's opponents. And I'm sure that'll, if that's so, I'm sure it'll pop, you know, and I'll include it in my preview. Um, but that's a couple months away. Yeah, no, they're fun though. And I, I, I enjoy their offense. Like it's just a YOLO, like air it out offense. It's not an air raid. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, everyone who runs air raid stuff, but it's not, it's definitely not like a leech air raid. Do you think that either of the two big teams in the Big Ten are um, are as good as they were last year? It's about uh, Michigan and Ohio State. I don't. I don't think Ohio State. Well, actually, I should. I don't know how to say this. Okay, let me. Let me. We'll we'll go a little slower on this. Ohio State is certainly better on defense. Like that is without question true. Um, offensively, though, they can't run the ball. Um, it, that has really surprised me. Yeah, and they they struggled on the interior, the offensive line last year, and then all off season the whole talk was like, well, they actually have like guard body types now, and not just tackles across the line, so it should be better. But it hasn't been better, and it's not because they don't have good running backs, because both Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams are pretty talented guys. Um, and like even teams like Northwestern that suck are stopping the run against them. Uh, yeah, so, I know it took them a while to get the run game uh, going against Northwestern, although it was the key to them finally pulling that game out. But I do think I. But they're better defensively. CJ CJ Stroud is kind of Jekyll and Hyde to me. Mm. He he makes some really really impressive throws, but he also just like his ref, his refusal to use his own athleticism like ever is kind of weird. Um, and then like on Michigan, I do think Michigan's flat out better than they were a year ago. Their offensive line seems better, which is kind of weird considering they lost some guys to the league. Um, and I think JJ McCarthy gives them substantially more upside. Not, not I mean he. He's still, I think Bud Elliott from the Cover 3 podcast did a really good job of just kind of calling it what it is. He he doesn't throw with a lot of anticipation still. He's kind of a see-it-throw-it guy. Mm-hmm. But he has good arm talent. And, and because of his athleticism, um, he adds a dimension that Cade McNamara like, could kind of add. But like McCarthy is legitimately explosive as a runner. Um, and Corum and Edwards is better than Corum and Haskins from a year ago, which is saying something because Haskins is a good player. Uh, and... And I think that getting healthy at receiver and getting, um, shoot, number eight, I can't remember what his name is, but he was hurt all of last year with an ACL back and has made them more explosive through the air. Uh, and then defensively, like, yeah, you lose two first-round edge rushers. That should be a real problem. But, like, I think the rest of the defense around that the edge is better, and they've got, like, a nice deep group of guys with talent on the edge that can create some pressure. So I don't know. I, if Michigan, and Ohio I, I really State, question whether or not those guys should have been first round draft picks when I watched Michigan play in the playoffs. Yeah. I, I don't know if I agree with you on that one personally, but um, I, I, I think Michigan had a really bad year last year in terms of their offensive tackles. And those guys numbers were inflated. I, okay, I think Michigan's a more complete team than Ohio state this year, but I, I think the, the, the fact that they're playing, at Ohio State after beating them last year, I think is going to really work against them. I guess where I've been going with the questions that I've been asking is that outside of Georgia, I think all the teams that might make the playoff are beatable teams. Yes. Uh, oh, I, would, okay. I thought that's where you were going, and I want to say I want to say two things on that. First thing, uh, I would favor Michigan on a neutral over Ohio State right now, but in Columbus, I think you kind of have to give the edge to Ohio State. But if Michigan's able to run the ball like even halfway as effective as they did last year, Michigan can totally win that game on the road um, because they are competent defensively. And so, and we have not seen Ohio State's defense play against anything close to Michigan's offense um, yet this season. Like 
Penn State's okay. They're like a mid thirties, low forties deep offense. Um, but I think I, I think Oregon could be either one of those teams, whether it's in a Rose Bowl or a playoff. Um, Georgia, Georgia's on another level. Georgia is just capable, like when they when they want to, they're capable of turning the physical the physicality up to a level that I don't think anybody else in the in the country can match this year. Yeah, and so it's sort of like you know we may be getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's like I sure hope that Oregon doesn't come in four. Um, I would like them to either go to the you know I would like them to come in five and go to the Rose Bowl or three and have a a, a decent semifinal matchup that they have a shot in. Um, but four is kind of the kiss of death. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I mean, I think we would fare better against Georgia now than we did earlier in, uh, in game week one. Yeah, they might um, only lose by 30, you know? Yeah, instead of 46. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, I was thinking about this today, actually. Like, I would love to get another shot at Ohio State. Um, I think that would be, like, a really positive thing for momentum. I actually think that we match up better with Ohio State than Michigan, which is kind of weird considering that I think our defensive front is our strength. Um, but I just think that Michigan's more capable of being balanced and causing similar problems to what Georgia did to our defense than, than Ohio state is like, I think we could flat out stop the run against Ohio state and force them to be one dimensional. And like, yeah, you have to try to match up with Marvin Harrison jr. And Jackson Smith and Jigba and Mecca Buka and Julian Fleming, which isn't really fun for anybody, but, uh, like at least you can take away something. I would just like to have the opportunity to play either one of them, whether that's in, in Pasadena or or potentially Phoenix. And I think with that, we're at two hours. Yeah, let me let me say one last thing on that. Like I think that playing in this Rose Bowl would be pretty special, just given the fact that this potentially is the last Big Ten Pac twelve Rose Bowl. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that you know, that'd be pretty neat. I also like that the ACC got taken out by uh, ACC champion Stanford. <laughs> um, by extension you know you i actually see? thought that clemson was the team of all the potential playoff contenders excepting georgia uh that matched up best against oregon i really wasn't looking forward to to seeing that matchup uh for you know clemson's defense um but not a concern now no and the fact that it was notre dame is just like so it's unbelievably hilarious delicious. yeah <laughs> yeah well perfect i think doug you were trying to wrap it up I think that's a if we're if we're actually at two hours. Wow, we are two hours on the nose. All right, well, want to send us off? Actually, we're at two hours and ten minutes now. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's been a good. You know what? It's always a great conversation when Hithleday comes on and and the two of you just get get nerding out back and forth with like really really informative conversation that I think the listeners can learn just a ton from both of you on and it's great for me i just sit back and listen and have a thought here and there and and let you two roll and and really appreciate you coming on hithley again from addicted to quack make sure you check out his game previews and game reviews over there uh, twice a week every week and uh we can't thank you enough for joining us again i'm sure we'll have you back on at the conclusion of the season for uh a, you know a wrap-up show or at least at the conclusion of the regular season plus conference championship game if, if Oregon makes it for a wrap-up show and then we'll uh, we'll go from there so thanks so much and um as always you can find us on at qb11 show on twitter and you can find me at douglas ts on twitter and at qb11 sd on twitter for mr qb11 hithleday what's your twitter handle 
it's H-Y-T-H-L-O-D, the number one. Hith, at Hithloday1. All right, there we go. So thanks all for joining us. We'll be here on Thursday morning with our preview of the Washington game. So you don't want to miss that one. Thanks all.